Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 9 of the Convergence podcast. I'm I'm your host Siddhartha Valuri and in this episode I got a chance to talk with Indrajit Sasodia who is a senior compositor at Pixamondo Toronto. I came across his work for the first time when he had submitted his entry for the Neon Knights Get Past 3D competition and I was immediately blown away by his short film Neon Sins which was completely made in Unreal Engine and new and reached out to him to have him on the podcast so that I could learn more about his process and mindset while making it and share that with the audience. This is another really long episode, close to 3 hours long and packed with a lot of knowledge and information. So I hope you all enjoy it and let's get started. Again, officially, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um Right when I saw your entry for Neon Sins or Kitbash Neon Knights competition, when I saw your short film, I immediately felt that 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 project is going to get some prize. I don't know what particular position, but it'll get something <laughs> for sure because it was at such a high quality. And yeah, that's when I thought I should also reach out to you. So glad to be able to have this conversation with you. Thank you, thank you for thinking that. I I had uh, a lot of. Uh, times when i so this is not the first time that i participated in a kid bash contest there mm-hmm. was one i did before this for cyberpunk mm-hmm. contest and the one before that which i did for the industrial contest and for both times i felt like i put in everything i knew like the industrial one i did it in maya and redshift and i put in everything i knew i learned all these new things i did the same for the cyberpunk contest and both times i didn't even like get acknowledged into the runner up list which made me like ter- feel terrible i was like why am i doing a third one i'm not going to go anywhere then <laughs> so i was like you know what it's okay cuz like uh, like i said i was like trying to learn unreal and i was like it's okay it's just the practice i'm doing in unreal anyways to see if i can do this and then it just went out of hand to a point where i'm like oh i can add this i can add that i can add that and then before i knew it it was like a full scale city but uh, yeah thank you yeah so I think uh, I really don't know much about your personal journey and how you got to the position where you are at right now and I looked around like I couldn't find too much information about your journey to being a senior compositor at Pixamondo so I think let's start from the very beginning sure just how um, did you get into art we can go really really beginning I can go back like 20 years if <laughs> go, you want me go to. for it go for it um I I would say that I always have been interested in art but i was more of like a nerd as you would say growing up where i was like more into science and i had books on space and dinosaurs and like all these aliens and conspiracy theories and all these cool science stuff like back in the days mm-hmm. um uh, but um ever since then like i also had a passion for like drawing and sketching and i still have my sketchbooks from when i was like in second grade and first grade and i used to have like I used to like copy basically so I I used to see images I found one of like I remember very profound profoundly doing Aladdin and Genie and Jasmine on a carpet and I drew the <laughs> whole thing and I still have all of those drawings from or I would draw like Baloo from like Tailspin because there was a cartoon that used to come on like Indian um DD1 and DD2 that was like the channels back then mm-hmm. but I used to like draw all these cartoons and now that i even look back i would be like like i'm not like really kissing my own ass but i would just like to say that they were like pretty good drawings i would like look back I'm like ah oh, this kid has talent is doing good <laughs> but then i never really like like pursued it 
per se. Like my like you know the whole Indian parents mentality where it's like oh I have to be engineer doctor kind of thing. And mm-hmm. then my parents were nice enough that they didn't really force me too much into it. I naturally grew inclined towards um, learning more science stuff. Okay. But uh, as time moved on, um, I eventually realized by like tenth grade till tenth, I was in, even after tenth grade, I was still in science and like computer it and all of that but i never really ended up doing um like <clears throat> i would say much productive work like for for myself when it comes to uh like i i met this uh so we had this uh it's, i'm going off on a tangent here but uh um uh, back in uh i want to say 2008 but i could be wrong like there was a solar eclipse in india where um, it was like a total or like a, a partial solar eclipse. And there was a contest called the Helio Odyssey, o- uh, Helio Odyssey contest or something. Okay. And um, it was like a multiple choice online thing. And whoever wins gets to go to this event that was happening in Delhi, where um, a lot of uh, like prominent people were going to come. And Sunita Williams was going to come, who's like the Indian oh. astronaut yeah. who's in NASA. So she was going to come and then other like NASA people were going to come. So I participated in that because I really wanted to do it. And then I won and oh. I ended up like going to Delhi uh, from Ahmedabad, which is where my hometown is. So uh, when I visited there uh, on my way back, I ended up doing uh, this, uh, this, I would say really educational journey back. Cause once while I was there uh, there's, there's a, a team of like uh, scientists that are working here in Am- like back when I was in Ahmedabad it's called the physical research lab laboratory and they're like the scientists like I think they're kind of affiliated to ISRO I'm not really sure but like they're basically like science people like actual scientists scientists and they were gonna go they're in Ahmedabad and so they went to this too and so on the way back I happened to be in the same train as these people so as I was I like walk, like I have this thing whenever I'm in Indian train to like put all my stuff. And then I like start exploring the train where I like okay. walk all the, the whole length of the train. And I went, ended up in the, I think the first, first class or whatever, where it's not supposed to go, but the door was open. So I was like, yeah, whatever. So I walked in and I saw like, you have the, your personal k- k- cabins, right? Like you have like a, a lot your own section with your own door. And everything. so I just peeked in and I saw that one of the scientists, uh, uh, a guy who was just sitting in there and it's like got his white beard and glasses and everything and then he i told him it was like oh it's you and then he recognized me because uh when i told my name it's like indrajit is not as common of a name and then the reason he recognized me is because while we were in the whole event mm-hmm. where in delhi i asked a lot of questions in person to him where i'd be like oh so tell me about this and then and i basically was the annoying kid who asked too many questions and that's why you remember him okay so uh the scientist was like oh yeah oh yeah i remember come on in have a seat uh, so i sat so it's like he was sitting in the front like in, in front of me and then i was sitting like opposite to him in the other part and while and all this was happening how old were you at this point I would say, um, so I finished my high school in 2009. So I would say like a mm-hmm. couple of years before I finished it. Okay. Um, I'm terrible with ages, but I can tell like by mm-hmm. year. So cool, if I'm cool. born in 90, I would say um, 19, 20 something. I don't know, somewhere okay. around that age. <clears throat> but um, so, so I sat down 
this and then the other groups of side like all the other old fellas who were with him they all came and they all like because they were like coming to the they're still like settling in so like they started coming in and they all sat so i was basically sitting in a room full of like these like the combined brain iq of like a thousand or something and they're all like oh so how's it going because they're interested it's a kid and they're because like they know each other they're probably like they want to have a good conversation so we talked and talked for like a very long time and while i was talking one of them said something that really stuck with me is one of the famous quotes i think which goes like it's good to be uh, you should better be a good gardener than be a terrible engineer. And nothing against gardeners. I, I don't know who came up with the quote, but it's like a thing where it says like, if you want to take a profession that is not socially acceptable by like the society stereotypes of jobs, it's okay to take the job and be good at it. Then be take that other job that the society deems as worthy and be terrible at it. And that's something that really stuck with me because although I was in science and I was trying to, uh, get into the whole science and apply for science colleges. I like, I personally also at alongside of doing those science things in the, in the later years of my school, I always attended like animation events or I was like big into Pixar and I used to do all, all these, um, like I, I learned flash nine, I believe, which is like before the whole uh, creative suit came out and the yeah. CS stuff like the old school. So like a tutor used to come and teach me and this other girl that, that was a friend of mine, like we both would learn Flash. And I did like little animations that I still have of like me animating like little aliens in Flash and stuff like that. But I used to do that as a side thing. And my mom always thought that I was in uh, going to in, in like a science background. But so then this just, whole just thing- to uh, kind of dig a bit deeper into your choice or reasoning to go into science at that point. Was it purely because you were curious about these topics that you were mentioning, like space or aerotechnology and just yeah, I would say, out of curiosity would, rather than going into a particular side of profession? I would say it was basically that, that whenever somebody asked me what you'd want to do in science, I would always say I want to be like a researcher because I always wanted to like look at more things than like do actual applicable science. You know, like when you have applied sciences, you're actually doing real world jobs with science, mm -hmm. which is something that I was not in travel. I was always like the kid who wanted to like look for new things or look for things that are on the cutting edge or something like that. But then while having this talk, like the quote wasn't the only thing. There was like more things where the scientist basically explain me the science scene in India back then and how you would have to like go through your bachelor's master's and then like to your PhD level in order to like basically do what you want to do but even then there are chances where you might end up like helping a tutor who's basically taking your PhD with the topics that you were doing instead of uh, doing your own thing so more like a research told. assistant kind of a thing yeah it was like basically you would end up doing that instead of uh, like the way I was told by them back then was that if you go abroad in a lot of colleges, you end up doing the same PhDs, but like the tutors assisting you in like your topics that you're choosing where you're like, Oh, I want to do PhD in this. And then the tutor assists you. And that kind of put me off where I was like, Oh, even if I invest so much time and effort after like doing all these courses for so long that I still won't be able to pick and choose something. And now that I look back, I thought it was a bit naive because I'm sure there are a lot of people in India that are still doing their own thing and are in PhD levels. But then mm -hmm. it just kind of made me feel like I would rather pick something that gives me instantaneous uh, happiness while I'm doing it 
and that being animation then rather like wait for like 10 years because uh, you're right i basically um was fascinated by science it wasn't that i was in love with science it was mm -hmm. one of those things it's like love at first sight infatuation kind of thing but you don't want to commit in a relationship with the science kind of thing yeah actually put so, in the effort to become a PhD yeah exactly because that involves a lot of things that are not as fascinating mm -hmm. and i like things that are fascinating more than um like the things where i have to like learn something just to become something rather than learn it because i actually enjoy it so i ended up coming home from the train and my mom was like oh yeah i came back from the science thing and she was all excited only to find out when i was like i'm not really looking forward to doing that she's like what happened mm -hmm. it is one of those like indian mom things where like she i it was very radical change for her and i don't even blame her because like she's seen me grown up like and with all the science stuff and then she ends up uh like the kid just comes one day and it's like i'm quitting everything for arts i'm an artist now kind of thing you know what i mean so uh my mom was uh, really baffled by uh, this whole change to a point where I had to ask my best friend to come over because like my best friend, my mom knew for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then they had to explain my mom, oh, please let him do animation. It's okay. And there's like this, so mom's biggest thing was like, there's no money in mall. There's no scope, blah, blah. And this is such an Indian question. Every time I used to get asked, like growing up in animation, they would ask, uh, uh, what's the scope of the field? <laughs> What's the scope of it? like? And I never understood this question, but then eventually I realized an answer to it. Whenever somebody asked me, I'm like, whenever they say, "What's the scope of this field of animation and VFX and everything?" and I'm like, "Do you watch commercials?" and they're like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Can you tell me one commercial that does not have animation or VFX?" and they're like, "Yeah, I can tell you plenty." And then they would say something like, "I don't know, like Vico Budget or something very traditional." They're like, "Oh, it's possible to do it." And I'm like, "You realize the text fading on is still motion graphics, right?" Mm -hmm. Like it, it's not something that's cap anything that's not captured in camera is some sort of effect that you're adding in post so we're living in a digital world already back in like the early 2000s so it's only going to go higher from that so that was always my go-to answer but um yeah so my mom eventually agreed to it uh and then she was like okay well it's your choice remember if things don't work out you chose this because actually like remember giving up the AI triple E exam, which is this engineering entrance exam for yeah. like all over India. And at that point I had decided hundred percent that I was going to go into animation. So there was no backing out. And I remember sitting in there and because I already paid for it, I was like, Oh, well, I'll just go and give it anyways. Cause like the money's paid for it. So I went in and had zero clue or like I, I did whatever the best I could in terms of like answering or just like writing whatever answers I could do by just like guessing them or you know, it's one of those things where it's like you solve and the answer is 30, but there's no option 30. The closest is like 45 and you're like, oh, I'll take 45. <laughs> I probably messed up somewhere. But uh, yeah, I ended up doing that exam and mm -hmm. I r still have the page. You know, the back page of every question paper has space for rough work mm -hmm. is what they say where you do your equations and your all that. I draw I, at that time I was really into Wally -E and like Pixar. So I drew like full size a like you could say like yeah like full letter size page i drew like wally a figure like a little drawing of wally and I, as i was drawing it the guy who you know the like the teacher whoever's in the exam class walking back and forth and like checking that students are not cheating or anything like they saw me and they were just standing there watching me draw and i was like the rest of the students are like going crazy and sweating <laughs> and they have their calculators out and they're like oh we must excel and i'm just sitting here drawing wally like a complete 
um, stupid kid who's like he not gonna thought, go anywhere. He might have thought you're like some sort of a genius who's already done with the. No, program. that's what I'm saying. It, it looks that way when I say it, but I'm sure from his point of view, it's like this kid is not going anywhere. Like, look at these <laughs> other studious kids who are probably going places. But um, yeah, so. I still have that page because I was like, you're supposed to submit the entire question paper back. Mm-hmm. So you can't take anything home. But then I was like, can I please have this page, please? And because he saw me draw, he's like, okay. And then I still have that page like nice. saved That's cool. when I drew that little drawing. But anyway, so that was the beginning of me entering the whole animation field. Uh, I finished high school in 2009. Mm-hmm. And the same year in the summer, I joined Framebox which is the animation institute, private animation institute uh, chain that's spread all over India. So one of them opened up recently in, uh, in Ahmedabad and um, I really wanted to join. Oh yeah, before, I, it wasn't even that. So the, here, here's where it gets crazy. Before I joined Framebox, I joined Mac, which oh. is another institute. Yeah, and yeah. the thing with that is back then, the people who started Framebox is the way I was told were the people who were part of Mac and then they had a creative falling out with the original Mac people. And that's when these other people started Framebox and then Framebox became a rival to Mac basically. And then, so I joined Mac because Mac was the only thing back then. I was like, oh, Mac and Arena, I believe, Arena Animation. Yeah, Arena Animation, that's right. So so I joined Mac and I was like a month into it and it was, it was terrible. It was like on CG Road and... It was like the, the teacher would be so boring and kids are actually sleeping, like not even fake sleeping, like actually sleeping, sleeping in the class. And the teachers like doesn't even care. And I was sitting there. And so I did a month of Photoshop there. And then I was like, what am this is so stupid? What am I doing here? And that's when Framebox had recently opened up and they put an uh, event together in, in, in Ahmedabad where it was like, oh, come learn about this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, famous people are going to be here. So me and this animation friend of mine that I told you that who, who learned Flash with me. Mm-hmm. So me and her, we both were like, okay, let's go to this event. And in the event, I ended up meeting uh, one of the HR people from Framebox who ended up became, becoming a really good friend of mine. But uh, uh, so that's, that's how, and she was like, oh, why don't you come join Framebox? We recently opened up. And at that time, I didn't tell her that I was from Mac because I thought it was like rival, so I should oh, say right. it. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay. And then, so for the longest time, uh, uh, I ended up being in this uh, um, dilemma because I didn't tell home at home that I wanted to switch because I went to see the frame box, basically. Like, I went to see the place, and I liked it, and it was way better than Mac because it had just opened up, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, like, putting in all the efforts in order to, like, lure the students and make it all pretty and, like, have the best teachers and all. So when I joined, even when I like went to visit her and like the institute, I was I lied to her and I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I just finished my schooling. I, I I haven't like and she's like, okay, cool. And then you can join. But then I couldn't tell her that I was like in Mac. Then mm-hmm. eventually later I told her and she's like, it's okay, don't worry, you can still come. And then, uh, but yeah, shout out to TJ for uh, getting me into Framebox. I I basically believe if it wasn't for her pulling me into Framebox, I would have been in like a very different spot in life. So I would like to credit her whenever it comes to for like meeting me that day in that event and pulling me into a, a trajectory that I feel like got me to the place that I am. But uh, so, I, so yeah, I, so. I find that fascinating. Like some moments can truly change the direction of your career or life in a pretty dramatic manner. And yeah. it's only down yeah, the line you realize the impact of that moment. 
yeah it's like in the moment i was like oh it's okay i would have done like animation through max stuff but then i realized that it, it's just the people around you makes a different mm -hmm. like if like the crowd and the energy that i had in framebox in the beginning couple of years was like very contagious so so yeah if, if tj wouldn't have like asked me that day i wouldn't probably uh, be in the spot i would have been somewhere different mm -hmm. i'm sure i would have like done something with my life but it would have been completely different so, so that's how I joined animation. So at that time, I was very much into animation and Pixar and had zero idea of VFX because I've never done VFX. I only watch movies and you watch all these Hollywood movies, which is another thing. It's like a big, oh my God. It's like, so um, again, I'm going off on a very different tangent here and you can stop. That's okay, you, that's okay. Like, but uh, growing up, I always felt like uh, I would never, so I, I remember going to watch like, so every time there was like Hollywood movies. So this this is my uh, story about how I got into the whole Hollywood movie influence that in the beginning, whenever we used to watch, we'd watch like dubbed movies. So like all the Hollywood movies would be dubbed in Hindi. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, it's cool. And I would watch all these like movies like Armageddon and like the old school stuff, like from like back in the 90s and the classics, Die Hard and all that. But um, they would all be in Hindi. And so I remember one time I went to the theater my sister so my sister's elder than me so it's just me and her uh the siblings so she was going to watch pirates of the caribbean i believe i'm not sure which one i think it was the first one but um and i was like oh can i tag along she's like yeah okay and then that movie was in english hmm. and i watched the whole movie and that was basically my first i i think yeah, I think that was my first experience at watching a movie in a theater in English where I watched the whole thing and I had zero clue what they said. And my mind was like, just like blown by the fact that I knew English because like we were taught in school. So I knew English and everything about English and grammar and all of that, but I still didn't understand them. I just still didn't understand anything. And just to be fair, I still don't understand Johnny Depp and the way he talks, but um that's another story like I, I didn't understand and I was like this really affected me personally where I was I was like really scared by the fact that I would grow up never understanding these people from the west basically hmm, that's and fascinating. Okay. So, I, so I had this basically this this fear so I came home and I told my mom and she wasn't paying attention she was doing some work or something so I was like well I'm really scared I don't know what to do. I'm scared of this thing, blah, blah. And then she wasn't paying attention. She was like, oh, you should just do more of it. If whatever you're scared of, then you do more of it and you get over the fear. And essentially she wasn't realizing that she was telling me to watch more movies. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess good, I'll Good advice for an uh, up and coming animator. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, oh, okay, I'll watch more movies. And uh, so I ended, ended up uh, watching a lot of the movies where like I would go to the theater, sit and not get a single thing. Like it would just like, oh, uh, and when I say not get a single thing, of course I understand the plot because like you can watch the visuals and get an idea of what's happening in the movie. What I mean is like little jokes and like the way they talk, I wouldn't get it because mm -hmm. like we don't talk that way back in India. And eventually I watched so many movies, but like, yeah, she was right. Where I watched so many that the brain starts adapting and understanding over time. And that was my influence into VFX where I watched all these movies and like the old school stuff where I used to be amazed by it, but coming back to the original topic, uh, when I joined the Institute, I was very much into Pixar and like animation. And uh, we ended up uh, making a couple of shorts here and there, like uh, nothing major. At the very end of 
the four so it was a bachelor's course that was affiliated with the uh, Sikkim Manipal University so okay. I did that and towards the end there was an um a project that I did called um so I was the team lead and I did like some of the help around the project the project was called untamed and it's supposed to be this concept of like in the future there's race cars but then there's like races that are held by these mafia gangs where they're they have a little robot like a little droid that's like basically like you can imagine a harry potter uh, uh the golden what is it called golden the finch the golden finch yeah the, the thing with the wings that yeah. flies the little ball so oh, the snitch so it, sorry the golden snitch yeah so that that one so the concept was like taking that but making it very techy looking and like has a little propelling booster in the back and stuff like that and okay. so the cars are supposed to chase this and then if the cars don't chase it within a certain time the bot then like turns around and starts chasing the car and then it starts basically just like blowing up the cars and then whoever survives at the end of the race gets to keep all this uh, fuel which is called the blue matter fuel which basically fuels like these cars and it's like the next thing in the future and whatnot and it's like a very stupid concept now that i look back at it but uh back then we were like okay let's make us uh, let's enter the cinematic category so framebox had these awards called the frame flicks award which is like the national framebox awards which like all the institutes across india come together and mm-hmm. they all submit their entries and then like if you win then you win and it's all uh, student level at this point right yeah 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 okay. all the student work but it's in different categories like live action and cinematics and uh, hmm. 3D modeling and stuff like that. That's actually a pretty so, good thing. I mean, to get people focused upon yeah, yeah. a particular thing. Yeah. And it's a good thing in terms of like having kids not only do things by themselves, but to have a group effort of some mm-hmm. sort. Because if we're going to make a cinematic at that point, we wouldn't have done it like solo. So it was like a <clears throat> team of a uh, couple of people, me and some friends who are still very close to me uh, because we did this project together. And... Um, So yeah, it was a lot of effort put into it. There was like a lot of uh, uh, like cars, like beautiful animation done and all that. But the end result and like the rendering looked just terrible. And there's links to it and you probably can't find it on YouTube. But if you do, it's like, I don't know. I think I have it on my YouTube channel. Just but, send uh, me a link privately later. No, it's on my YouTube channel. It's like oh. publicly published. You could just look oh, okay. for the older videos. Like my older videos are terrible. Just so anybody who looks for it, just please don't. <laughs> Uh, I'm surprised there's no hate comment on it. But uh, um, anyway, so the if you watch it, it's basically a Maya play blast. And mm-hmm. like there's like no beautiful uh, lighting. It's supposed to take place at night, which makes it harder. Uh, but then that's what we had decided. And there was this whole story, and I wrote this whole um, crazy thing. So like what you're if you go to my YouTube channel and you look for Untamed, uh, what you see is basically. 10% of what the final concept was. And one of my friends has um, his YouTube channel, but he's just like a personal YouTube channel. And he has uploaded the whole play blast that we rendered from Maya that was supposed to be the final movie. You know how you like you render a play blast from Maya, then you put it in Premiere, edit mm-hmm. the whole movie. Then if you know it's all good, then you decide and that's what you render the final thing, knowing exactly how your final timeline looks like. So we ha- so he has that that uploaded. Uh, with like the actual car animations and there was supposed to be like all these crazy beautiful car flips and explosions and all that that we like ended up scratching out because we couldn't get them rendered and what you do see in the cinematic in the, in that um, 
is a little, um, it's really funny the way I describe it, but it's basically a little, uh, imagine like a factory kind of setting and there's like a paper with like a BMW drawn on it, like on a side side view. So you just draw a BMW on a paper, right? And mm -hmm. the paper is like on these rails and the paper is going through these little modules, kind of like industrial modules. So the moment the paper comes out, it's basically a gray shaded uh, BMW. Mm -hmm. Then it goes to the next module and now the BMW has colors and textures on it. Okay. Then it goes to the next module and then there's like BMW has lights on it. And the next module and now the wheels are spinning and it's animating. And what this is supposed to be originally was the credits for the whole short where we were going to show everybody's names saying, oh, whoever did the pre-production sketching work, your names show up here. Oh. And the car goes through like the gray shaded one. So all the modelers, your names go through here. Then when it gets textures, all the texturing people, then when it starts moving and animating, that's when the animators, when the lights come on is when the lighting artists, so on and so forth. So I had, I had done this by myself while I was hoping the team was doing the actual thing. And I rendered the whole sequence from like the beginning till the end. And I realized that we didn't have the actual short rendered. And then I was like, oh man, this is terrible. And what you end up seeing is just this typography stuff in After Effects that we did, where it's like two people talking and I'm trying to do the, uh, so I, I had watched No Country for Old Men at that time. Okay. And I watching Javier Bardem and the voice he has where it's like it's very gross and the way he talks kind of it's like very uh raspy sounding voice so I tried to do like this fake voice and with that kind of voice in my mind and did some voice toning to it to make it sound like that but it's basically two people talking and all this is just filler bullshit <laughs> like uh it, it's basically none of this is actually supposed to be the short we don't have anything rendered and whatever so we basically had like five to ten shots rendered out of like say 30 or 40 and we were basically now trying to submit this for the contest for however way we could by like butchering the script and like whatever concept we had of showing blue matter is now basically two people talking about blue matter, but in text form, because okay. we can't even get people. We can't even like shoot live action or anything. It's supposed to go in like game, game cinematics category. So we can't even put like two people talking about it. So we just did like little typography with like glitching after effects thing. And anyway, so like they talk and then you see this whole uh, sequence of the credits that were supposed to be credits that end up being the actual short. And then eventually uh, you see parts of the short, but then when you do see them, they look like they're 10 years older. Like, you know, it's like, they look like animation renders from 2001 or something, or like Toy Story time or something. There's like terrible, just terrible anyways. But the animation was really good. And I still have the Maya files, which is why the team that put it together, now mm -hmm. everybody's like, like one of my friends is a proper FX artist who worked at MPC and like all these places. And like all of us are like properly done. So we always like talk about it every time we get together. We're like, we need to make that project and we need to make it like look like a, because the goal we had in mind while we were doing it was the need for speed cinematics, you know, mm -hmm. like the whole need for speed, uh, hot pursuit and all these uh, cinematics that used to come out, these beautiful looking uh, photo real uh, renderings. That's what it's supposed to be. But then, oh well. So so yeah, so we did that. We so we submitted this absolutely like steaming pile of garbage for this contest that I was personally not happy with, and everybody on the team was like, "Oh, it's okay, we did something," and they're like, "And the the final con like the reveal and the whole event of Frameflix was supposed to happen in Goa, 
and all these people are like oh we got to get to goa because we submitted a movie right and they that's, were like that's the main part yeah and then i was in the mood of like oh my god i'm going to be embarrassed when they play this on the stage and then we all are sitting and there's like this big villa like resort like thing with the big projector screen next to the swimming pool and the tables are arranged and everybody's like eating fancy food and drinks and we're just sitting there and then they're like okay so the nominees are and i'm just like i'm expecting like so 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 here's the thing like back when we were in framebox amdabad we knew that certain frameboxes had their ace people you know it's like mm-hmm. framebox delhi had some ace people or like i don't know like framebox mumbai or frame, like with the big city like some of them they had like these people who would put out this really good looking stuff mm-hmm. so we were like oh we're against these people we're never gonna like get anything and they're like okay so nominees are and they like nominate a couple of people from those institutes and then they're like oh and untamed from framebox amdabad and i'm like how the fuck did we even make it in here like we don't even deserve it and then everybody's like yeah we got nominated and it gets worse it gets better for them it gets worse for me um they're like uh, and the winner of the game cinematics national category is untamed and framebox amdabad and everybody's like mm-hmm. well yeah and then the amdabad crew was like all yelling and happy and i was like yeah happy fake smiling and fake pretending and i'm like i'm i'm genuinely like you see some pictures from me on the stage i was happy for the effort the team put together that we got like recognized but i was basically not happy with it i was like this does not represent me this does not represent the quality of work that i would like to put out and that's something that i feel like has stuck with me for the longest time where i do not believe in putting out mediocre stuff if you're if your stuff looks mediocre to you it's definitely going to look mediocre to a hundred more people out there mm-hmm. so if you think that it's not up to the mark submit something at least like if you're if you say your benchmark is 100% at least submit something to like 80% of it you know to me that's fine if you like work hard and you can only get it to 80% it's fine but if you're submitting something that's like 30% of your final output and you still like proud of yourself over it for like having finished it i feel like it's like you did something wrong you know what i mean there's like a limit to it you should be proud of yourself if you're like 80% there and you tried so hard and you had all these sleepless nights mm, i had a question about this like um the scene in animation in india especially in like institutes it's not like that competitive so to speak compared to the really high standards that are set by better vfx schools yeah. so how did you get to this mindset where you were able to really have this sharp focused professional outlook on it that okay we finished the project but it's not to the standard that i would like it to be at and even just, even though you won you were still that critical yeah. of yourself i think it just comes from growing up with the mentality of never settling for less okay um it's it's just that it's it yeah it's something that gets inculcated as you grow up in your uh from your parents from like the environment around you where i was told to like always like reach like shoot for the stars you land on the moon kind of thing but at least like have that goal don't be looking at the horizon kind mm-hmm. of thing um but having said that i i would also say it was because of all the stuff that i used to watch in the hollywood movies a lot back then and i would say i i, I ended up watching a lot more than my friends who wouldn't like end up watching a lot of bollywood stuff and like whatever was the recent new bollywood thing and i'm not hating on it it's just that the quality of bollywood at that time was not as good like it's great now and they're doing some spectacular vfx now but like back then it was like just 
mainstream VFX of like shitty green screens and you can tell that it's all uh, terrible looking. Mm -hmm. So if you grow an entire generation of kids watching that, you can't expect them to shoot for something higher, something that's more internationally recognized. Like you can't expect them to think of Transformers if they've never seen Transformers, you know what I mean? So if I feel like it's important to have kids get like at like not from like very early age obviously like you you should know where you're from and the roots and all that but you should also have kids know other parts of the world so if you ended up watching like movies from other cultures even if they're like dubbed or subtitled or something it's okay at least you get to see visuals that are not a part of your culture that are not a part of the industry that is okay i feel like at that time bollywood i think that exposure is quite important because like you said just visually seeing something that's from a different place creates a different kind of stimulus like especially when you watch south korean films or japanese films exactly it like, gives a very different feeling to you as you start watching it exactly like when you like if somebody's like trying to make a horror short film you know what i mean it's like mm-hmm. if you end up just watching bollywood movies for horror references you're going to have a very terrible looking horror short film like it's just going to be a bunch of jump scares and stuff but mm-hmm. then you end up watching like uh, all these beautiful japanese horror movies that are genuinely psychological thrillers and not just like jump scare shit because i've never been a fan of that i always think like i could put the picture of a very cute cat with a loud sound and you'll still be jump scared by it that's very cheap um true horror to me is like psychological where you feel very unsettled and you can only know that if you watch something that tells you of that so that's your reference point that's your barometer for knowing what uh good cinema would be and again, like I'm not dissing on like mainstream cinema, like it has its place, like the whole, um, uh, I read this review somewhere where somebody was talking about how you have the main course and then you have a dessert. The main course is supposed to be the definition of the meal and the dessert just adds on to it and makes you feel nice about it. Um, what I feel like in Bollywood, I'm not sure now because I haven't been in touch ever since I left India, but like as I was growing up, the main course used to be the, these uh, movies that are like mass produced for the audience that is not looking for something with a deeper meaning to it. It's just that, oh, put some songs, do a little dance and that's it, we're done with it. And let's make some money. But then for the dessert, you would have movies that would actually have substance like Amir mm-hmm. Khan's movies, like that would inculcate also the singing, dancing aspects of Hollywood, but also have like some sort of emotional gut punch or something that would like try and spread a message of some sort, but not try like to be too preachy about it. Um, I think I would say ever to... since the boom of Netflix and Amazon Prime and stuff like that, a lot of more yeah. original content has been created exactly. in India, which is developing those kind of films and properties that you're talking about. Exactly. Like, uh, and that's what I'm saying. Like, th- th- This was the case back when I was growing mm. up, but I'm sure like now that these companies have come in, and it's not just the companies. I feel like overall India is changing because of the fact that the internet has uh, entered a lot of the more houses than they used to back in the 90s. Like we all grew up in cyber cafes and going to those places as the only source of internet. But then like now it's like easily available. Everybody can watch YouTube and Netflix and Amazon, which brings, which is great, brings a lot more uh, platforms to India. And at the same time, now I end up watching things like Bollywood things Bollywood like with air quotes because mm-hmm. at the end of the day um, it's Netflix stuff it's not exactly Bollywood stuff but like yeah. Indian movies and Indian cinema and uh, or TV shows I end up seeing on Netflix have excellent quality like um, they have great storytelling they have very gripping characters and great VFX 
um, some stories are like really well done to a point where it makes me like sit back and wish that this was the time when I was growing up. But luckily, like I did have the influence at least ended up watching a lot of um, movies from outside of India. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, so that is what I would say was the reason when I saw that I was like, oh, this is not I'm going to settle for. Um, we need to do more than that. And then eventually uh, I finished Framebox. I submitted my reel. Um, and uh, from that, the, so this was in 2014 okay. when I finished it. And I already was looking for places abroad because what I learned is that we were taught Nuke in uh, Framebox. Uh, shout out to Sri sir for at least doing it because like that was the he was the only guy like trying to promote Nuke and like Nuke is the thing for compositors because before that we were doing like all these um, After Effects based stuff right so that's not the industry standard internationally so he he did teach us a little but then I really wanted to learn a lot more and for that I thought um, I should look for colleges and I ended up looking for all these places all over the world and then what they offer and what the rules of the government are. And this is something that has always been a question to like, there's been so many students who message me mm -hmm. regarding, oh, I'm a student in an institute and they're basically where I was. And uh, I see myself in them when these questions come out. Cause I used to be that guy. I basically like spammed everybody I could on like all the alumni list of all these different colleges. I would just send them emails and be like, tell me about it. Cause like, you know, coming from a middle-class family, your parents want to make sure that the place you're going in and you're spending like thousands of dollars on is something that is going to help you out. It's not just like a decision, like Mac, you know, back in the days where you're yeah. just like, I don't think I want to continue here. I want to leave kind of thing. Yeah. You can't backtrack, so, especially when you move to another country, there's a lot more. Exactly. There's so like a lot at stake and you want to make sure that it's not just like this, the course or the college itself. You want to make sure that the government allows you to stay what the visa thing is mm -hmm. and the whole um, paperwork that follows. So a lot of students who message me about it, uh, about uh, how I end up uh, knowing about most of that stuff is just like research, looking up things online. And this is what I would say is the biggest thing that they should try if they're ever uh, wanting to follow the same path is to send messages to all, like look up the alumni of all these courses, you can find them. All you have to be is just clever at Google. Like you search the name, like name of the college, add VFX afterwards, add alumni or something. Like even if you just search the name of the college and education or just add VFX, you would end up on like several people's LinkedIn's. Yeah, that's the best like, way oh. to backtrack, definitely. Yeah, exactly. That they would they would have put in Seneca as their, as their education and you would see that. And then you just send them a message saying, I have questions. Can you help me out? And not everybody would help you out because a lot of them, once they end up being industry professionals, don't really look back and help because they're like, yeah, whatever. It's just like, yeah, it's, everybody asks me the same thing. But then the reason I do it is because I see, I, I did that myself and I see other people approaching me doing that. And I feel like it's a duty for me to do it so that when they end up in my spot, they would go helping out more people and mm, you pay it forward. Yeah, that's actually a really good point the kind of interactions that students might have early on with polite or not so polite professionals, so to speak, can really determine the way they end up treating their juniors. Down exactly. And it's, it's just one of those things where to them, it means a lot. Like recently, one of the students approached me on Instagram message, me, and I was like helping him out. And to them, like, he was like, Oh my God, it's so amazing. And his work was really good. And he's a student. So I followed him on Instagram. Okay. And, 
he got this feeling i was like oh that man my day is so cool amazing thank you thank you so much and you know how indian people have the habit of saying sir which is something that's not prevalent here yeah but they'll be like thank you sir thank you so much and i'm like it's okay i just like, followed me and i totally get that sentiment because i was in that spot myself where i sent messages like a very long passage of email where i'd be like i have questions about this that blah blah and like a bazillion things and most people won't reply because it's such a big essay of questions so like the ones that do uh like one of the guys who re- when i sent him a message he replied back and he was in toronto uh, and i ended up uh remembering his name because it made a profound effect on me that he had uh, written this big answer back to me and not just like oh do this and that's it and then when i came to seneca he ended up teaching one of the classes for effects mm, small world and i was like oh and then i was like oh it's you and, and he had zero clue because it's one of those things where now if somebody was to approach me when i'm like teaching at seneca a lot of people would be like oh i messaged you again and i'm like hey how's it going and the guy i, I don't remember them because like, there's so many students sending me messages about it but then i'm glad that they have that effect because i see myself in them when i was like oh i remember you you sent me this and then um yeah it, it definitely left an impact on me and that's why i tried to do that but uh yeah anybody who's trying to out there like always uh looking for things and the last thing you should do after sending these emails is to go to a consultancy near you uh and you end up basically asking the paperwork questions the visa questions because there's a lot of things like that that are not clear straight up like for example when i was going to come to canada i had decided that canada was a country i just had to pick a college I was looking at Vancouver, I was looking at Lost Boys because like as an artist you look at the reels that these places like put out, right? Mm-hmm. You want to see what the recent students are working on. So Lost Boys when I saw them because they had a lot of industry affiliations and a lot of people knew them in Vancouver area. They had like the reels looked really professional and beautiful and I wanted to join it, but later I realized that you can't. I mean the the status might have changed now. This is from like 5 years ago. but back then i couldn't because i realized it's a private institute much like brainboxes so what happens is because it's not government affiliated it ends up like you can apply for work permit and you might get it but there's a chance that you might not and the government would send you back okay so you basically came spent like 20 grand dollars on like education and then you go back home and that's it which is terrible for somebody who wants to start a life abroad so for them that's when i realized I realized that you have to uh look for places that are government affiliated and that's when I looked at Seneca and at that time they didn't have a really good reel like the first time I looked at it back in 2013 the reel was like 10 5 years ago and it all looked so old and dated and I was like ah oh, Seneca is terrible like who wants to go here but then luckily when I was not able to get into lost boys because of this whole visa thing and my consultancy stopped me from doing it um i was like okay i'll look at more options so that's when i looked at seneca again but that's when i realized and thank you joe who's the program coordinator for the vfx course in seneca that he had opened his unofficial website of seneca vfx so not the official college website but like his own thing where he's putting out all the information and all the recent reels and on that website i ended up seeing a lot of the uh recent works and I ended up seeing a lot of uh uh the the more amazing works and that's when i was like oh it's pretty good i'll apply for this so i took my reel from framebox that i had done i submitted it to seneca in 2014 and i got selected and then all the whole packing thing and moving to another country 
which is a bit overwhelming, but I was more excited towards it because like it was like this new world and get to like meet new people from all cultures. So I came to Canada on the 25th of December, 2014, exactly on Christmas day. Nice. And uh, I basically landed here. It was like the middle of winter. And then anybody who starts January intake always ends up getting this view of Canada that's not in line with what they were sold. Because like anybody who comes for September intake has still like the summer, fall, beautiful view of the Canada. And then you end up in a January intake and you just see snow and white and like everything is dead everywhere. Mm -hmm. I was like, why is it so cold here? Because I've never seen snow in, in India. Never went to like a hill station or something. So first time I saw snow was when I came to Canada. And then the course started meeting all these new friends from all these different cultures learning out about them, being friends with them. And how long, was, how long was this course for? So the course was, uh, I think the official teaching time is eight months, but the course oh, okay. gets classified as one year in the government's like uh, pages. Okay. So as a result, the rule for Canada, again, all this information is from like five years ago. But um, if you work for one year, you get one year of work. If you study for one year, you get one year of work permit. And if you study for two years, you get three years of work permit. Mm -hmm. So that way, most people try and pick the two-year course because that way you end up getting like a longer time to work and you can apply for a permanent residency and all that. But um, um, financially, we could all, my parents could only do one year. So what kids do usually is that they take one-year course and then like once that is over, they apply for a second one-year course, like a different course. And then together, they both form two years of... Uh, like education and turns that into a three years of work permit. But um, I didn't have, like my parents, like we weren't financially able to do a second course. Mm -hmm. So what that make, means is that once you finish your one year study, you will get one year of work. However, you will have to land work immediately as your work permit starts. Because in order to apply for permanent residency, you need to have one year of Canadian working experience. So if you end up, say, getting a job six months down the line, your work permit, like, let you basically got converted into work permit, but then you started six months in, then you only have six months to work and that's it. So you can't really, like, finish that whole quota. So that's why there are other colleges now, like Centennial, which is also, from what I've heard, is a good college for VFX, is that uh, they have a two-year course. So students who can afford it can apply that. And with that, you get three years of work permit. So even if you don't get a job in the first six years or six months or a year, you still have two more years to get work. And all you have to do is just one full, of e one full year of work in order to be uh, eligible to apply for permanent residency. So Yeah, these, kind so of, way, uh, these things and information is quite important, especially early on when students need to make that big of a decision, which exactly. country to move in and how to plan their future ahead. Exactly. Because a lot of countries are very strict with like even granting work permits from what I've heard, again, could be ch changed now. But uh, UK was very strict back then mm -hmm. for like, uh, if you study, then you have to leave if you're from certain countries or something like that, because they had a lot of issues with that. So places like that, you have to do your research, you have to go to a consultancy, they can talk to you, they can explain to you. You look at the visa successful records of the consultancy to see if they're a good consultancy, they're going to help you get your visa. And it's just a thing because it's a peace of mind. Eventually, you can do most of this paperwork yourself online on the Canadian websites. 
but it's just that you need some people to help you out in the beginning for the first first time you apply for a study permit. Yeah, I think it's overwhelming at the very beginning when there's like so many things happening simultaneously. So definitely a good practice to at least get a word from these professionals as well who do that on a daily basis. Exactly. And these rules, uh, that's why I keep mentioning that all the information is from five years ago because the rules change drastically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I believe when I was looking for things in Vancouver, just for one year or two years, um, British Columbia had this pilot program for taking in, I think, people from even private institutes and granting them um, like guaranteed work permit or something. So like I could have applied for that and then gotten into Lost Boys and then actually gotten a job and like be, been in Vancouver. And again, that would have been a completely different lifestyle again. Yeah. But then um, the when I found out that that program ended exactly when I was applying for my visa is when I realized that I shouldn't be. So it's just like little rules like that change every now and then. So it's important to like get in touch with a consultancy. So um, from 2014 to now you've been in Canada ever since. Yeah. So well, yeah, from 2015 January all the way till now I've been in, Canada. So I finished my study in August of 2015 is when I finished Seneca. And the good thing about Seneca was that um, the people that teach at Seneca also work part, like, so they like teach part-time at Seneca and then they also like work in studios part-time. When I found out about this in the beginning, I was very skeptical about it because I was like, well, then you're not going to pay as much attention to the students if you're just coming some days to teach. But then I realized that it's actually a blessing because yeah. what ends up happening is that you end up getting screened for an interview, which is like eight months long, instead of like like going to an interview and making your mark in that time, your mentors actually see you for a longer time. So before I even finished, so my course ended, ended up in August and by July, like a month before I already got like messages from my mentor saying, Hey, are you interested in joining our studios as compositor? And that was great. Cause I didn't have to go look for work. Uh, but that's something. So, so realistically speaking, I've never given an interview in my life, but oh. uh, that's only because of the fact that I was studying there, but I'm sure if I w- was to like move and leave pixel and go somewhere else that I'll have to do it. Mm. But uh, just about that interview part, I just wanted to go a bit deeper as a student at Seneca, um, how realistic is it for every single student that they'll be getting offers even before the course finishes? Or No, no. Now, now yeah. they, it doesn't matter because now they still actually do interviews even if that was like back then because even okay. Pixel Toronto at that time was like starting up and like getting into the gears. So mm-hmm. because Mahmood, who's the uh, studio, like the VFX, like the main studio supervisor of Toronto and Montreal. So he takes care of both the studios. He is a crazy, crazy, crazy dedicated guy because like he does all of that. He manages two full studios and now the Unreal Virtual Production stage and he teaches Seneca part time. Cool. So I, I have no idea how he does the whole thing. But uh, because he knew us is uh, why he like messaged me and the rest of the people that he liked. Uh, they'll just come on and apply for it. And we end up... Uh, joining the studio but from what i hear now uh whoever still graduates from seneca they do it like actually like an interview like you come in and then like you sit down and then you talk and so but i just happened to be one of the few batches in the beginning which 
where he was just like, oh, come on in, just start working kind of thing. So Nice. That's that's a, I mean, those are one of those things which it's either luck or right place at the right time. So you can't really yeah, say I, much I about that. So. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, I finished that. Um, so ever since from August of 2015 till now, I've been with Pixo and uh, started as a junior compositor, like intermediate compositor, now senior compositor. Um, I just feel like a lot of the times people approach me and they're like, oh, there's, because like there's some friends who were with me and then went to other studios and then moved to other studios and I have been jumping around a lot. And I've, I've heard that it helps you grow faster. So once you leave, let's say your last studio as an intermediate, although your experience level is not senior, you could just join the next one saying senior, I'm applying for senior because like they don't know the previous, like they can, all they do is they see your reel, right? They can't really tell if all the information in your head is the senior level compositor yeah. information. So that's what they do when they jump studios, like you end up becoming compositing leads and supervisors and so on and so forth. So whenever they like come back and we have a chat, they was like, why don't, might have never left Pixo and like go look at other studios, so much stuff out there. And I personally think it's true, but at the same time, the reason I've been around with Pixo for a longer time is because it's a very family-like environment, which is something that I like. They support a lot more flexibility than a lot of the, you know, the sweatshop studios that I never want to work with. I don't want to name them either, but like a lot of them, are known in, in the industry as like sweatshops where like it's not really family environment it's very corporate and you're just a cog in the wheel they're very strict about things and i don't want to be a part of stress like that even if it means like like people would say oh if you know that's another thing it's like whenever you go to a lot of these sweatshop, sweatshop studios you end up getting a lot more movies and the reason why, why they are sweatshops is because they're taking so many movies at the same time that nobody has any time to breathe yeah, I mean, so it's like a the, constant state of crunch, basically, because they need to keep exactly. stuff out. Yeah, yeah. And you might end up with an IMDb that says, like, the names of these movies, and you might have reels with shots from those movies. And that's great. But then at what cost, personally? Because I'm the kind of person who grew up in this industry wishing that um, I would have time for my personal stuff, because that's what I want to like go for in future like i don't see myself doing vfx all my life i see myself telling stories because that that was my goal ever since um so the one thing that i miss talking about is um when i switched from the animation look forward viewpoint to vfx because while i was in framebox and i was learning animation and i was so much into pixar and like animation animation dreamworks pixar never knew about like vfx stuff then as I started getting introduced to VFX stuff, I had, I had all these crazy stories in my head and these ideas of these cool looking shots of like these, oh, this big explosion and a spaceship and a dinosaur. And like, you know how like you get uh, carried away with like these hero shots in your head. I always wanted to tell them, but I never could. And that's why it drew me closer to doing actual live action VFX more so than like 3D animation and all of that. Okay. It's because I always wanted to create these worlds in my head where... I could imagine them, but I could never put them out. I could always like have these stories that I want to tell, but I can't because I don't have the resources. And that's pretty much the reason why VFX drew me in. So that's why I don't see myself in the long term doing VFX. I would like to direct more things, come up with more stories, have um, a team of artists where we all can come together and decide together what to do and what how the project flows forward 
rather than like working for a client old guy in a suit sitting in america not really giving two shits about what the project looks like i think this will be uh, sorry to interrupt you but i think this will be a good time to dive into the project that you recently directed which is the neon sense project because i feel like this is like a pretty big splash in terms of your directorial career separately compared to the work that you're already doing for pixel so i think we can yeah. dive a bit deeper into your thought process behind creating a project at that scale pretty much by yourself and i'm not sure if there were some friends of yours that assisted you with that project but um, even in terms of the deadline which is quite short um so uh, when it comes to neon sins actually neon sins was a byproduct of the batman project oh. um so i would actually talk about the batman project first where um ever since i was a kid uh, growing up i never had uh, cable tv in my house we only got like in india if you have a tv you get dd1 which is this channel that everybody gets mm-hmm. and when you end up uh, having just that your cartoon um uh portfolio is not that big of how many cartoons you can watch or you can have like 5 or 10 but then cartoon network and all these used to be on cable tv So I used to go to summer breaks to my grandfather's house every time I would just be like okay time to go to grandfather's house I would just like rush in because I knew that he and uh, two of my uncles who lived with him at that time had TV and they had cable and it was on the third floor my grandfather lived on the first floor of this uh, tenement uh, so every time I would rush in my grandfather would be like hello and then I would just bye bye and then I would just like run up really fast all the way and I would just like sit in front of TV watch cartoons every day all day to a point where he used to threaten me and he would be like oh cut the cable if you don't come and talk to me you come here to see me not to see the tv is like okay okay and then i would come and sit like the obligatory 10 minutes of sitting with him where he would tell me a story from his time and i would sit and listen to his story and i'm like okay dad bye i got to go watch my cartoon it's going to start and then uh, so anyway so that that was the first influence of when i ended up watching the batman animated series from the 90s I didn't watch it in the 90s. I feel like most of the cartoons that were made originally in the West got sent to India a lot later. Yeah, I think it was in the early 2000s when we probably saw those cartoons that were made. Yeah, yeah, there was like a big gap in time. So yeah. I ended up watching them nonetheless as a kid growing up. And I watched a lot of cartoons from like Dragon Ball Z to like uh you know, all the way from Dragon Ball Z level crazy action to like something like Powerpuff Girls where I don't care if people tease me that it's a girly show. I'm like that's not a girly show. No, that is like a very I mean, action based I watched it as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like so fun and I don't even care if you call it a girly show. I like to me I love the the whole Mojo Jojo and the bad guys and Townsville. And the funny part was that all that would be in Hindi, it wouldn't be in English. So it was like <laughs> Townsville Shahar. Aaj dekhte hain Townsville mein kya chal raha hai. And then suddenly it's like a monster comes in or something. But uh Yeah so it's like I watched like a whole variety of shows um one of them that really struck a chord with me was the Batman animated series because I always was captured by how serious the the cartoon was even as a child um it's not that like oh we are making like I as a child understood that the cartoon was not made for kids and that's something that speaks volumes for a cartoon when a kid realizes that it's a serious themed thing because it involved a lot of emotional roller coasters it wasn't just like action action all the time there was like a lot of brooding and talking and crime solving and all of that so every time i would watch uh 
the intro for that i used to get goosebumps when that theme used to play and that theme has always struck with me mm-hmm. uh ever since of like the uh that was basically inspired from the 1989 batman with the keaton that came out danny elfman made the music for it so that and then every time like that theme would roll into the end where it's like nah, da, 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 da. and then you have the lightning behind batman i used to get literal goosebumps and then i used to be and the best part was they never put like any title card which was like something that they never said batman because mm-hmm. like you knew that's batman like there was no like text for it you know so i ended up watching a lot of that so the goal so it was always with me and the goal was the the batman project has been a dream for a very long time where i thought of doing it ever since like probably like 2013 or 2014 onwards when i was like good at vfx and i knew that i wanted to do it but then i always thought that it would involve some sort of live action element where i would need like people and like actors and then we could have like uh, vfx blended into it but i never was able to do it and it was always something that kept getting put on the shelf personally and i never did that because i thought it's the same mentality from what we talked about before i knew that if i was to do it if i was the 2013 me or the even the 2015 2016 when i was starting into vfx me if i was to do it at that time i would do a shitty job at mm-hmm. it i was i wouldn't and i don't like mediocrity for that reason that if i do something i want it to be the best work that i've done forward so now that i've reached i'm sure like 10 years from now i'm going to look back at this and be like that was mediocre but i personally at this point feel like i've reached a state where i can turn visuals into something that could believably look very hollywood like that it would have a high production value mm-hmm. even though it doesn't really have anything a high production value like i could do that in a computer i think that's But, a fine balance like like you rightly said um putting something out there too quickly ends up being too amateurish but there's always constant progress and growth that's happening but you need to at some point make a decision that okay this is when i start taking those risks and creating some larger projects of course yeah, from there exactly. on you will only keep keep getting better from there yeah exactly um uh you're right and there's a lot of projects out there from like famous directors now that when they put them out they looked very normal and to them they probably thought it was the best that they did at that time and that's when it got noticed by other people and that's that's how it is that you can't really end up um doing this this uh, game of postponing it forever or the game of doing it too early yeah. all the time it needs to be somewhere in between where there's a the right time for doing it so so now the batman project so not rolling back a little bit backwards before the current idea of the batman project the the, the previous idea was to recreate that intro in live action the same way it is with the same theme that it carried so it was supposed to be a very art deco looking piece where mm-hmm. the dugs were actually going to wear fedoras and trench coats and it was a uh, so me and then a few filmmaker friends of mine abhishek and rebecca and ryan we all uh, so so i helped them out so with their projects so they wanted to do some vfx for their short and i helped them out and then ever since then we became friends and I ended up uh, wanting to create this and they always supported me in doing this so that's why we did some tests uh for for the batman project that are like these unlisted videos that i have on youtube uh where we were doing live action tests of people on green screens and creating a very sin city style thing because that's exactly how sin city was made too it was like basically shot 90% on green screen and then 
like heavily color corrected in post and then turn into this noir looking very harsh contrasty mm -hmm. uh, piece so that was the original goal but uh and that's why i was building the first intro of the batman uh the, the first shot of the batman intro is this opening shot of gotham as the camera pans from the blimps it starts panning down into the city and you see this building in the middle of this frame and then it fades into a close-up of the building is when the thugs enter the screen and the bomb goes off so i was trying to create the first scene um for myself while my friends were trying to secure a place to shoot the green screen footage at because like i have some friends who own studio spaces and we were trying to uh we were trying to get that space when it's like during the free time okay so we can like end up like shooting something in there um so so while my friends were trying to get that place and the actors and all of that I thought, oh, let's just make the opening intro because it's full CG. So it will at least have something to show to the actors or to anybody else that, oh, this is how the project is going to look like. So I ended up creating the whole um, opening shot in the Gotham City. I took Kitbash 3D's Art Deco kit mm -hmm. and I started populating that in Unreal. So I first, no, I actually populated that in Maya Redshift because I hadn't learned Unreal at that time like in 2019. So I was like slowly building the city by myself without like there even being a project. I was just like, oh, let me just build the city. But then I learned Unreal and I was like, okay, I have to do everything again. Mm -hmm. So I like built all the buildings again and put them in a specific way, like texture. This was again before Kitbash announced that they were going to do files and stuff for Unreal. So you, all you had to do was like bring in an FBX and that's it. And then you have to manually assign the textures and like, reconnect all the pieces together and like that was a whole nother hassle but luckily now they have an unreal option directly where you could just download a unreal file and all the buildings are in there is that for like, all the kits including the older ones so they have some so art deco is a very old kit mm -hmm. but because they know it's a good world kit that's why they have upgraded that to have the 4.0 status is what they call it okay uh, which means that all the textures are pbr and they're in square format. So it's like before the textures used to be like thousand by 500 or something random like that. But now it's like proper squares because like Unreal streams those squares perfectly. So if you have a square texture in Unreal, then it would stream it, which means that it would create the level of detail, uh, the MIP maps for different level of uh, detail that you are at. So if the city is really far away, mm -hmm. the textures on the building are like 50, uh, 500 by 500 or something. Okay. And then as you go really close, it quickly switches from that to like 8, 4K or something. But it can only do that if the texture is a certain power of two. So it can't do it if you put have like any arbitrary shape texture. So it's little things like that. And then like combining all the pieces into a blueprint and so that you can move the blueprint around and stuff like that. So they didn't have that. So I did that manually for all, all the buildings. And that's when they were like, oh, hey, by the way, we're coming up with Unreal kits and now you can download those kits. So they did that to some of their kits, but then a lot of their kits, if you go to their website now mm -hmm. say legacy kits, okay. which means that they aren't supported with the latest PBR stuff and right. the Unreal and all that. So luckily some of those older kits also include the rooftops, which is like props for the rooftops, like chimneys and spires and like communication dishes and this and that, or like street side props which is the things that I bought. And because even now there's no update for it, 
luckily because I sat down and converted every single asset into Unreal, now I at least have even those assets in the Unreal library so I can like populate things. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I created this first shot of the camera panning down. I had the blimps and I had the spotlights and the whole thing. And it looks cool, but it looked very monotonous. There was not enough breakup because everything was warm. The windows looked the same and it looked very video gamey. And my goal with this project was to create something photoreal. Okay. Photoreal to a point where even if I can't reach 100% photoreal where you cannot tell, I mean, of course you can tell because it's a fantastical city. It's not like something based in reality. But even if I reach like the blur cinematic, you know, level where, or like the love death robot cinematic level where it's like, you can tell it's pretty well done. It's not just like a very video game looking. It's like somewhere between that and like a hundred percent photoreal. So, um, so, so I, so I realized that it wasn't working. And at this time is when Kid Bash announced um, the neon nights contest and i was like oh, okay but um i believe it escapes me the reason why i couldn't I, there was some so the contest usually lasts three months and there was something going on and i forget what but something that made me that i didn't have time to start it in the first two months and mm -hmm. i forget exactly what but i did remember it um but then eventually in the last month is when I found out and like, I actually, no, I, I didn't know about it. I think the last month is when I had time to do it. But then I was like, shit, everybody's like posting all these entries. And it's always like, I, I knew that I couldn't compete in the image category. Like I'm out of my league already. Like you guys are like people like you already exist in this category who are going to like put out matte paintings and all these images that are going to look like ILM level work and I'm like I'm not going to compete in this level it's not even there's no chance here so I knew the one thing I could do is video because I have like being a compositor I know that I can like put out 3D CG image sequences and then turn them into an actual uh, good looking video and that's exactly what I did for the cyberpunk contest that uh, Kid Bash had before this mm -hmm. where I created another short uh, called Tears in the Rain uh, based on the dialogue from the end of the Blade Runner movie where uh, Rutger talks about the tears in the rain and um, all these moments would be lost. I love that line. It's a beautiful line where he's dying and he says that he has seen all these beautiful worlds and the grand space things and all these moments will be lost in time like tears in the rain. Hmm. And I really, it really struck a chord with me. So I created a little short for cyberpunk contest and that was a video that I did uh, and that one actually took three months back when I was learning Maya and Redshift. So that video was done as a proof of concept for Redshift, that I was learning Redshift. I bought Redshift for Maya and then I was like trying to get it to work and all of that. But uh, so anyway, so coming back to the original topic is I knew that I could do video. I couldn't do uh, image. So I was like, oh, well, this is the time. <clears throat> Sorry. This is the time. And I put everything in Unreal because I was already building the Gotham in Unreal. I mm -hmm. had learned a little bit where I knew how, how I could do it. And luckily at the same time, Pixel partnered with Epic and NVIDIA in order to set up their Unreal uh, production stage, the virtual production stage. And as a result, they wanted to teach their employees who are interested in Unreal, how to do Unreal. So Unreal came up with the fellowship which I think even existed before. Yeah. But the, the fellowship, 
the fellowship program basically uh, lets industrial industry professionals learn Unreal, where for two, one month or two months, I think. I think it's uh, it's actually two months long, but it's thirty days of actual teaching okay. spread over two months. So where like people from Epic come, people who have built the software or like know the software for like like the back of their hand, they come in and they teach you. So so my boss messaged me and he was like i want you to get enrolled in this and because i had already shown interest that i was like talking to the unreal team every now and then and like i was like doing all that so my boss was like okay i'm getting you enrolled in that and i was like thank you because usually you have to otherwise if you're applying as an individual it takes like you like you have to get through a lot of people in order to get screened into it i guess like it would be like an application process in that case right where you yeah, need to apply exactly. for it and stuff okay yeah. yeah, again, so, being in the right places. And I think one thing I wanted to point out was that it's not just that you were in the right place, but again, you were showing that initiative to talk to the Unreal people and also exactly. indicating to your boss that you have that interest and then that interest reciprocates. Manifest. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I feel like it's important to broadcast your interest to the people that are around you. Uh, a lot of people might think, oh, you're just oversharing things. But I feel like if you broadcast enough, there's a chance somebody might listen and opportunities like this would happen if if they knew. Because I know another person who's a compositor like me mm-hmm. in Pixel, and he does great game stuff. But he, uh, he didn't really like talk much about it and he hasn't really um, broadcasted the fact. Like he, he told me that he has done it because me and him, we talk and we're good friends. But uh, he's not, he, his personality is not the type where he would like go on and like tell people about it directly. And as a result, when he saw that I was enrolled into it, he's like, how did you get enrolled? And I was like, you just talk. And that's how I do it. And I, I think he's now uh, moving into the Unreal team as well. I'm not sure. But uh, that's that's the idea that you need to let people know that you're interested in certain things. And I, Although I feel, people. I think there's like a tag to it. Like it's not something that, you're trying to gain some benefit or reap some sort of reward out of it. It's It genuinely just starts from you being interested in certain aspects of the industry or certain kind of work and you're just purely sharing it for the sake that you enjoy doing it and you're wanting to yeah. explore a lot more. And then when yeah. people start seeing that energy and that positivity, then they really want to kind of help you out and help you get better. Yeah, it's like you should be, you should be passionate about it. You shouldn't really be... Uh, that's something that I've noticed a lot of the times, especially when I was in Framebox back then, because art like this does not involve any kind of entrance exam is why a lot of people who enter this enter with the mentality that because we didn't land anywhere else in other fields like art, uh, sorry, not art, in other fields like engineering or doctorate or whatever, which requires some sort of entrance exam to filter out the good from the bad. A lot of people enter art thinking, oh, it's okay. I'm just going to enter. I'm going to do good but you can't because it's just as competitive as those fields where if you're not passionate about it, you're not going to make it. And that's what a lot of people ask me. It's like, how do you do this? How do you, how's it, how's it? But it's like Kung Fu Panda, you know, and spoiler for who hasn't seen it till now, you're too late and I'm going to spoil the ending. But Man, there you, is- You can't be giving spoiler alerts for like Kung Fu Panda at this point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like, there is no secret ingredient, you know, you open up the dragon scroll and you think there's something magical written in there, but it's nothing. It's just a reflection of yourself. And that's why whenever people ask me questions like that, when they see works like this, that how do you do and how's it's just because I'm driven 
to create visuals. Like it's something that has to be intrinsic or something that you develop over time. It can't be something that you force yourself into. You can't be like, okay, I'm going to do visuals now. It's like, doesn't work like that. You have to be like, to me, I'm fascinated by the idea that I do not need anybody for me to create an image that is in my head out on a computer. We live in a time when these technologies enable us to create the images in our minds out on a screen and broadcast it to the world. We should be glad that we don't have to be Leonardo da Vinci or like Michelangelo to like sculpt the things that we have to sculpt, you know, like you could do it in ZBrush and press undo a billion times. <laughs> it's not like him where he chipped the wrong angle and he's like, shit, the statue's done now. And uh, like we live in times, we should be grateful for things like that where we can create these things. And because technology like this exists, it just fascinates me and it, it inspires me that I can create all these worlds and have all these visuals that are um, fantastic in visual quality. So I think it's so also yeah, important yeah. to take advantage of the tools that we have at our disposal at this point, because if at this pace, like everyone's growing artistically at a much faster pace than they did say 10 or 20 years back where the tools were still developing. And now that rate of growth is just getting faster and faster. So it's almost like the yeah. later you start putting in that effort, it'll just create like a exponential gap in the skill set that you require to really do very, very high quality work down the road. I think it's true in all fields where I feel like the more technology has been available to the common man, the sea of people that is filled with mediocre stuff has been gone through the roof. Like for example, even if you look at photography, before only the pros could uh, have the money or the means to get a camera, especially a digital camera. Mm -hmm. But then as like technology made it easier and cheaper, now everybody has a DSLR and everybody has a Facebook photography page. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like yeah, a monkey with a DSLR is not a photographer. It's what they, it was like an image of a monkey sitting with a DSLR and the caption said, he's not a photographer just because he has a camera. And, and it's the, actually the trademark black and white photo to show the contrast and the monotony of that yeah and the, the my life my rules kind of text with like one letter small one letter big and i'm like oh cringe but uh yeah it's, it's an example like that where the same way like photography in 3d everybody has access to unreal and blender and the entire mega scans library which makes it crazier like even if you were completely uh someone who didn't know 3d and you couldn't make 3d for the life of you you can still put a cliff from mega scans and put a sun at a sunset angle and you can still make it look pretty and then oversell your skills by saying artistic and i'm like you didn't you basically drag the lego block and you put a light behind it you didn't do anything so but at the same time i'm actually happy that technology is doing this because although there's a sea of people that, that are like that there's a whole sea of people who wouldn't have been able to learn or create these visuals that are in their minds had it not been for these tools which which is, so yeah you're right it makes it harder the field gets more competitive because now there's a lot more people that are trying to do the same thing which is why you have to stand out even more and it would only get tougher the easier it becomes yeah it's like the barrier of entry keeps getting lower and lower because like exactly the yes. unreal and mega, uh, mega scans partnership and of course 
it's very easy to throw a cliff in there but then the question becomes why are you putting the cliff in a certain location and what's exactly. the story behind it exactly and that's that's the thing that um, you're you're right in the words that you put that the entry level is very easy to get in compared to what it was and as a result i feel like uh yeah you are like i said spammed with a lot of entries that are just like there and nothing done with it but then it helps a lot more people so so yeah coming back to the topic where i ended up uh, applying at the same time for the fellowship so the the epic people started teaching us which was great and another requirement well not really a requirement but like i kept seeing this online where if you're a part of the fellowship you have to make a little short to show like what you did in the course that you learned over two months oh, so i was okay. like oh it's a great time where i can make this one project and knock two birds with one stone where i end up doing the unreal short thing where i'm like oh this is what i learned in the thing but at the same time i'm also doing this uh, the neon nights contest from kitbash so that's how the idea started and at this point when the idea is in my head i have one month left for the contest to get over and i was like okay how do i do this so i imported the just like everybody i imported the neo city unreal project and i opened it up opened a new scene blank scene with the sun and brought all the buildings in it's like five of them i think five or six different types and a couple of props and i was like okay uh well it's basically like a blank canvas with like the first brush stroke and you're like shit we have an entire canvas to fill now and it's this whole world of just the sun and a sky and five buildings and you're like okay how do i make a city now so i was like let's at that time while i was doing that we were learning the foliage tool in the unreal classes in the epic classes where they were teaching how to scatter um grass and trees and stuff and then i had the idea which i'm sure a lot of people have but luckily i'm glad i have the machine that can support it where i was like what if i put the buildings as grass blades mm-hmm. and just spam buildings like grass everywhere so i took that and adjusted some settings here and there and i just spammed everything on one plane like a one large plane and it was obviously like oh, all the buildings are rotated at all angles so unreal as of now in the paint section does not allow you to have instances of the geometry at specific angles so you can't have like only place geometry at 90 degrees to each other which would help because that's how buildings are yeah but then uh it, it spammed everything intersecting each other there's like buildings going through other buildings oh and like so you but, had to ma- the, manually like reset the 90 degree uh, uh, later so. yeah in the, the first stroke that i did i just painted with the highest setting and my computer lagged for a second but then that's when it blew my mind when the moment it computed like so it has to take everything into the gpu memory in order to like have it buffered and ready to go so the moment it did i was like surprised by the fact that all these buildings with these textures and reflections are being computed at and then i turned on the fps counter inside unreal and it was like at 50 50 close to 50 fps hmm. and i was like on a single card you can have all these buildings that are like going through each other and there's like so many reflections going on it's like a sunset behind and i was amazed by it so i was like okay uh so the first i would say four four days was just me i didn't even build a city i was just like going around and placing cameras 
not even placing cameras. Like I was the camera and I was just moving around, seeing different angles and troubleshooting certain things. Like for example, translucency with the ray tracing doesn't really work as of now. Uh, might have changed in the latest version, but uh, at that time it didn't, which means that when you go out of focus, uh, when you go out of focus on the camera, everything would go out of focus and turn into bokeh just the way you would expect it, except for anything that's translucent. So the windows will still have a very sharp edge, like a window square. Mm. So you would basically see all the buildings turn into a blur, but the windows will still be like square. So you'll have like a wall of squares everywhere. Mm -hmm. But and then I was like, oh shit, how do I solve it? So again, the same thing. Every night I would sit and it would be one one problem to solve. And then four more problems show up. It's like programming. It's like you, you compile the code and you solve one, one bug and four more show up and you're like, ah, okay, and then next one and so uh, on and so forth. I, I had a question about this process in terms of the story development as well because you had a clear narrative that was going through the entire short film. Did you at any point storyboard out the entire sequence that you wanted to or were the no. early stages just kind of exploring um, it was it was just exploring because I didn't even know what I was creating. I did have one image in my head that I was trying to get at. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was before I created the city when I had spammed all these buildings. I took one of the buildings, which is the longer one, and it has a very flat edge on one side. So I rotated the whole building 90 degrees on its side. And I put it really high up and like really far away from the city. Uh, and my goal was to create this bike or like get a bike from the internet and then have a guy sit on it. And I was like, I just wanted to create like a loop basically where it's like this guy on the, like the building became the highway is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Cause like I, I didn't, I was like lazy enough to not even like get a highway. I just took one of the buildings and rotated it sideways. And I was like, oh, okay, let's have a, because the, the bike would move so fast that everything would be motion blurred, right? Mm -hmm. So even if it's a building, you can't really tell it's a building cause like everything is going by so fast. So all you would see is the city in the background and the sunset while this guy is going on this futuristic bike. That was the first idea that I had uh, when I uh, was just spamming buildings and like trying to solve the technical issues first before like actually doing anything creative. But um, luckily a lot of people from Pixel helped me out, like the Unreal team. I kept sending them messages and I solved some problems and came up with others. Like the window problem I solved by just, I was like, you know what, it's okay. I'm just going to make an opaque window with just reflection. So you can't see through the building. Mm -hmm. So before the windows that came with the kit bash, you can see through the building, but there's nothing in the building. So it's kind of hollow. So it doesn't, it defeats the point. So I was like, it's okay. I'll, so I just get, got around the whole issue by hacking my way through it, where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make the window opaque and make it reflective. So all you see is reflections and not through. So it's little things like that. You got to realize when you're on time crunch that you have to hack your way through problems where it's okay to not get a certain look but get another look by not spending too much time on one thing but like looking at the overall picture i guess the decision so, making has to happen like you need to make a choice and then move to the next step you yeah because i spent uh, I, sp I already spent by this point i already spent one full night and by night i mean i finish work around uh 8 p.m mm -hmm. then nine till nine i relax or do something and then have dinner and then i sit down again at the computer around like 11 or 11 like somewhere on 11 11 30 in the night and then i started like working on one of my projects all the way to like two or three and that's when i go to sleep and then wake up for work next day but uh so basically i had when i say i had spent one night i had spent that whole time slot from 11 to 3 
just trying to troubleshoot the translucency where I'm just like going through, I'm not even doing anything in Unreal. I'm just on Chrome opening like 10 tabs, reading through all people's comments, trying to find out how to solve it. So um, eventually uh, I was like, yeah, it's okay, just move on. And then I did. So even at this point, the idea was still to create this bike and the guy would be moving. Uh, but then at that point, uh, I realized that uh, I could uh, create not exactly the city you see, but something similar by having smaller changes. Like for example, and I'm, I'm planning on making a breakdown. So you'll probably see more in detail of what I'm saying when I actually publish it. But uh, the, the ground itself is like an image of Tokyo, but okay. like a ground image of Tokyo, like with the commercial science. So imagine like somebody took a photo of Tokyo in like one of the advertising districts with all these signs and everything. So I took that and like tiled it like to 10 times to a point where it's like very indistinguishable and then just spam that as the ground. And at that point I was like, what if I want to create a city? Like at that point, the first idea struck me because it was already at a sunset angle. I thought, what if I create, because the whole contest was neon nights, right? And I was like, shit, because the prompt on the kid bash thing said that it should be like the neon nights and the nights were nights, nights. They kept saying nights. And I was like, if I put a sunset, they're just going to be like, there's no nights because like the lights would be still off because mm -hmm. like the sun is still out. But that's when I came up with the narrative. And I was like, what if I made a city, which is like some sort on a, some sort of an incline where the higher up buildings are still getting sun sunset views while the lower deeper parts of the city are basically turning into a night. And at that point, this is the problem that I have when I start getting a narrative, I start getting carried away with it to a point where I know I can't achieve something like that. And I was like, what if I have a guy with a voiceover where he's saying that, look at the, the scum and the city and the, like these people who are these followers of the night, like the sun hasn't even set and they've already started their sins of the night. Uh, and then the camera zooms in onto this one building that I was focusing on where I was putting the most amount of detail uh, that you see, I believe, when the Neon Sins title shows up mm -hmm. and the camera pans even further down, there's one square building that's not as tall uh, on which the Chinese medicine shop is. Uh, so I was like populating that rooftop and the idea was to take one of the characters, actually more than one characters from the Paragon group of characters that Unreal has released. So Unreal released all these characters that are really high detailed and rigged and complete come with their own set of animations and everything uh and they're free to download from the marketplace so i was gonna get one of them and he was gonna be the bad guy who was sitting across from another guy and they were having this clandestine meeting on this rooftop mm -hmm. and then i was going to take one of the robotic characters from that paragon uh set of characters and i put that character as uh the bodyguards who are just standing there and then at some point, the highway that I had built with the buildings that were supposed to be the highway for the bikes, I was like, oh, I'm just going to make my assassin guy or like the shooter guy stand on one of these. And that's when I put the camera. And that's when I realized it would be better if I inclined the whole city. So before the whole city was a flat ground, mm -hmm. which wasn't giving too much of a dynamic character to the city. But then I realized if I rotate one of the cards at 45 and then paint the city as foliage, uh, it would help. 
and uh, that that helped definitely. So it's basically the the city's layout in one flat plane, then a second flat plane that goes 45 degrees up into a slope, and then there's a second flat plane higher up. So it's basically a step. Okay. And the city is basically spammed across this gradient. So the top level plane has the sunset views, then the gradient lowers you down into the lower part of the city, and then the lower plane has all the darker buildings where there's more lights on and stuff. There were two questions I had specific to a particular particular moments in this uh, in the shot. One was about the holographic dancing ballerina that particular mm-hmm. scene. I was curious how you went about doing that. And the second That's one just this. Sorry? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Okay, I'll just finish the other part and the other part was the top-down view where the camera was focusing on this road junction where there were like a whole bunch of police vehicles if I remember correctly. Yeah, I was really yeah. curious about those two scenes. So, so all that came much, much later because even at this point, like I'm saying, I got carried away with the fact that I had to do this narrative of the crime boss and I wanted mm-hmm. to do a full CGI. So you were never, ever going to get the views of the city that I showed. You were never, ever going to get the road views that I showed. So this is to show how much can change in one month of time mm-hmm. where I was like this. So while I'm planning all this boss stuff. So the idea was the guy on the top where I had put that horizontal building, which is like super high up from the city, uh, looking down on the city, the assassin was going to stand there with a gun and he was going to fire his, uh, he's the one who's narrating. He's like, oh, look at the scum down here. And I'm just a guy who's like hired or whatever. It's supposed to be like some brooding, dramatic shit. But then uh, he fires his sniper shot and then one of the robots who is protecting the main mafia boss sees that and he stops the bullet. Like he catches the bullet, sacrificing his robotic arm as it shatters. Mm-hmm. So he catches the bullet to protect. And then he looks up at the building and then everybody look, look up at the building. And then the guy looks down and then it's like this, this tense moment of like basically the two of them like looking at each other. And then the assassin basically leaves because he's like his cover is blown and he couldn't do it. Uh, but that was the goal where it was supposed to be this cool looking thing where like the bullet time where the camp bullet goes all the way from the gun to the sky and you see the hand shatter into a million pieces mm-hmm. and then the robot is still like looking up at him and all that. And then I was like, okay, we're not going to do this in one month. That There's no way we're doing this. In-. So I had to sacrifice all that because I was like, there's, there's basically no way that I'm um, going to be able to pull off a character because I didn't know how to do animation in Unreal. Mm-hmm. Um, we still didn't have those classes as of yet. I didn't know how to bring in all these rigs and stuff. And that's when I was like, okay, let's just do a city flyby and not do any characters. And uh, at that point, I was like, now we're going to have to do more parts of the city. So that's when I started uh, uh, thinking of actually, because before this, as I'm talking, imagine the whole city that you saw but without any billboards or anything because the focus was that rooftop Mm. and the the building where the assassin was standing on on the high up so there was so you didn't get any like details or the uh advertisements or the ground or any of it but now that i had scrapped that part of work i was like okay i have to work on the actual ground because like i said the ground as of now was just this image of like the street side tokyo that I had tiled like a million times to make it like so like, you know, greeble looking where it's like you can't tell what it is, but it's just something, but it's tiled a million times so you can tell. If I was to do that exact top-down shot with the cars and all of that, 
you could tell that it's like a tile texture because mm. like you're looking exactly at it. Okay. So I was like, I, I can't show this ground and I can't make roadways. This is something that I was going to emphasize on when I released the tutorial um, that is important is to uh, have the idea in your head to not reinvent the wheel. And I can't stress this enough to a lot of the artists. You don't have to reinvent the wheel when things already exist for you. If your goal is to create a new wheel, that's different. But if your goal is to get from place A to B, take the wheel that's there and get from A to B. Because that your, your focus is not the wheel, your focus is to get to your destination. But some people, their goal is to create a new wheel, in which case it's fine. But the way I say it is because um, I actually plan, just like everybody else, and a lot of people who are still thinking very highly of my short thinking I made all that traffic look so beautiful um, I initially thought oh let me put in the highways because I had because I had the highways kit from Kitbash, Kitbash yeah. and then I was like I don't know how to do crowd I don't know how to because the cars will have to be done through some sort of crowd uh, mechanism where you can like make them travel on these roads I didn't know how to do splines I don't know how to make an object travel on a path or any of it but I do know that the deadline is coming in 15 days. So we're doing this or we're just like wasting time learning things that are not really going to help me finish this effort that I'm starting with. So at that point, I was like, what if I decide to put the footage off the road? But in order to do that, I will have to find something that exactly matches it. So I went on to Pexels. That's the website that I go to to get like most of the footage that I want because it has beautiful high high quality artistic footages of all kinds and luckily this guy tom fisk that i credited in my description for the short had this footage of the top down view with his drone from one of the cities where it's mm -hmm. like a junction of cars just passing stopping and then flyovers and stuff like that but the issue was that most of those shots were drifting meaning the drone obviously, even though it's hovering in one spot or in uh, other cases, the drone was actually intentionally moving from spot one to spot second. Um, because it's so high up, you don't see a lot of changes in the people or the road or the cars, but you do see the changes in the buildings that are in the scene, right? Because the buildings are so close to the drone, you can see a parallax happening. So I was like, okay, um, how do I utilize this? Cause it's, cause I know compositing. So I come from that background. So I started thinking in terms of live action footage. So I took that footage, took points on the road and stabilized the whole road and ended up getting a footage where the road stays in the same spot in the video. Mm. Then I rendered that out and I rendered, I did some adjustments to it where I made it over sharpened cause I knew it was going to pass through UE's filters and then render again. And that would make it softer. And the cars were not as crisp as my 3D buildings were going to be. So I ended up like over sharpening it a lot to a point where uh, it was looking good enough and it was stabilized. And now I have image sequence, but now I'm like, how do I play this for? So for the next two days, I looked at like how to get a video inside Unreal. And then once I got it, I just could get it in. I couldn't never like actually play it. So it wouldn't play. It would be like one image on a card off the road. So but then just the starting I, frame of that entire PNG Yeah, sequence. exactly. But then I couldn't see it playing to see how the cars are moving and how it's all affecting. And I'm, I was so mad for like the longest time I looked for this one thing. And this is the example that I was saying, one checkbox somewhere and it solves it, but you don't know it. So you waste like 
I spent two full days on how to play something in the editor. Because <laughs> Unreal has the play mode where if you hit the play button, the game actually starts playing. And I knew how to play a video there. Because like if I hit the play button, then I can my character basically spawns like a video game. Mm-hmm. And then I could see the card with the cars moving and all that. But I'm like, I can't put animation and cameras in this mode. Like I need to have the the cars playing in the viewport in my unreal viewport so after two days somebody said uh when you make a player inside of unreal you just don't close it so like basically all textures in unreal are assigned to a player like uh, imagine like a vlc media player okay where uh the player is playing the video but in order to play it in the viewport you just have to play the video in the player and then not close it because it's a sub window, right? Like Maya and Blender have like sub windows that open up and you close them once you're done making changes, but you don't close it. You just hit play and you minimize it. Okay. And it keeps playing in the viewport. And it was like this one thing that I never thought of. And for the longest time I was like looking at, oh, click here, make a blueprint and then go here and then do this. And then, uh, and it was just this, that just play, hit play and minimize and that's it. And eventually I found out and then, uh, and that allowed you to Start. capture it in the camera as well to the frame. Yeah, that so that's that's when it started playing in the viewport. Okay. And now, at, so Mar- like, just so you know, at this point, the city is still spammed like full foliage. So there's buildings going through other buildings and all that. And because the goal was never to show the city, I had never planned on like correcting them. But now that I was going to do flyovers and shit, I was like, okay, this looks like it needs to look like a city. So I started deleting manually all the individual buildings, basically like deleting blades of a grass. Where I was like, okay, whatever building is like going through another one, I deleted those. Or the buildings that were like at very odd angles with other buildings, I started manually rotating them and like adjusting them to make it look like uh, it's not all like randomly placed. Because like if a construction, I was thinking from an architect's point of view, if like you're making buildings, you're not going to make like two of them next to each other at like 45 degrees to one another. They're all going to be like like parallel to each other. Uh, there might be another lot of buildings that is next to your lot that might be at an odd angle, mm-hmm. but at least your lot of buildings need to be in the same way. So I was like grouping buildings together where some buildings would be at certain angles. Uh, but then one thing I realized that cause, causes a beautiful natural breakup in the city is the fact that uh, it's okay to have buildings that are going at 45 to other buildings. Because that's what I realized that a lot of times when people make cities, every building is 90 degrees to every other building. So it's like, there's never a building that was made at an off angle ever. And I feel like if you're trying to capture something like a Hong Kong style uh, sky, uh, skyline, which is what I was like thinking of, like the whole Ghost in the Shell Hong Kong uh, cyberpunk uh, look to it. A lot of the buildings were just haphazard constructions that were happening where that's why it feels very clustered and feels like everything is like built haphazardly next to each other yeah because it's like they've they've kind of developed it over many decades and things are organically being constructed at different angles each time a new developer comes in i think exactly that kind of storytelling while developing a virtual city is quite important to consider yeah and you're you're quite right about like having that 90 degree grid across the entire city and ends up looking quite monotonous yeah, I did try making everything 90 and I'm just for to see what it would look like. So I made one 90 and I only had one camera at that point, which was the camera, the one with the roads. I feel, feel like it's, a, it's the second shot after, the, it's the immediate shot that comes after the neon since title is the look down off the flyover with the cars going. 
So that was the one where all the buildings, I tried to make them 90 and then I adjusted them to make it like the other angle. And then they worked when they, they were on at odd angles, but like mm -hmm. not too much. Okay. So at that point I started like laying out the city and I had, and that's when the, the roads helped me because right now my building again like i said it's painted like foliage everything is going through everything else and when i brought the car card with the road footage in to be the ground it, buildings are still going on top of flyovers right so this is how it helped me to naturally pave a way for the flyover when i started deleting the buildings that were in the path of the flyover and then the buildings that were next to the flyovers were at odd angles to the flyover so i started like rotating them to like gradually bend so like, imagine a flyover is like curving. Mm -hmm. Then my build, I started like curving my building. So each one would be rotated slightly to match the angle of the flyover, okay. which I felt felt kind of natural as to when the flyover is built. It would be actually the other way where the buildings would already exist and the yeah. flyover would curve around it. But then I made my buildings match to the roads that I had. And that also helped with me, helped me with the parallax because like I said, in some of the drone footages, uh, the taller building that were in the drone footage were still parallaxing. So I knew that I couldn't use the existing buildings that were in the video. I could only use the roads and the ground. I couldn't use anything past that. So I put my 3D buildings exactly on top of the buildings that were in the video footage. So like you have a ground plane and then wherever there was a building in the video ground, I put my building on top of it exactly. So realistically, it's in the same spot where the actual building existed in the drone video right like so imagine like a just, intersection just hold up uh, i have a question about that how did mm -hmm. you deal with the perspective focal length i didn't i'm just i'm just hiding it. Oh, oh you mean the perspective of the drone yeah because the drone will have a certain perspective at which it's capturing yeah so, the so, so that's why it's it's important to realize that the drone would only capture things at very gopro-ish wide angle look to it mm -hmm. the things that are close to the drone so any building that is like tall enough would get distorted by the parallax where you would see all these different angles. But things that are on the ground that are really far away from the drone are very flat to the drone. Hmm. So, okay. and most of those things are in the center of the video frame. So even if you have a fisheye distortion on the actual plane itself, as long as things are in the middle of the frame, they're relatively non-distorted. And as you go towards the edges of the frame, things get more and more distorted because like it's a wide angle lens. So that's why all these road planes, video planes that I put in, you never see the edges of them. You always end up seeing like the middle sections of them because the edges are covered by the build, 3D buildings that are sitting on top of them. Mm, nice. And if there are any buildings in the video plane where like the actual drone captured a building, which is like looking at a very perspective weird angle, I would just put my building on top of that building. So my 3D building is like hiding that vi that video. Off that the part ground. of the footage, basically. Exactly. So I'm only selectively showing areas that are right. Like, for example, in the shot with the tunnel, uh, there's one where there's a tunnel and the cars are going inside of it. In that one, uh, so again, the tunnel is made from buildings. I didn't like make anything. It's all like kit bash buildings that are like rotated at weird angles and at different scaled up and all that, like one of the parts of the tunnel is actually the rooftop of another building. So the building is actually lying on its side and the rooftop is actually the face of the tunnel that you see. And when I was making that one, that I really liked that camera. So this is when I was like slowly like adding cameras and making camera moves. But then as I was doing it, I looked at my ground plane 
and the cars that were already parked on the ground looked very weird because like the drone captured it from a certain angle like the top down angle and that's why my angles of the road are never shallow i'm always trying to stick in a very gray zone around the original drone's location in order to get the perspective right because like imagine if the drone was capturing something facing 90 degrees down but then you put your camera at like 45 degrees to that video footage that is on a flat card everything in that video footage would look not only flat, but it would also look skewed because mm-hmm. you're not looking from the same angle. So when I put this this tunnel thing, uh, the moving cars don't really matter because you don't really see them. They're just white dots of lights that are moving, but there were cars that were parked in the parking lot in the video. And all of those looked very skewed to me. And then I tried, I was like, oh, I kept changing camera angles. I was like, maybe this angle would help this angle. But then I didn't want to have too many top-down angles because then all you're showing is just top-down city, not something at a three-fourth angle, you know? Yeah, because so, I think that, you need something close up as well to tangibly feel the city as well. Because otherwise Yeah, like, it, like the angle needs to be, like I knew that I was going to put up close-ups of rooftops and commercials and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to capture the city at a different angle too. So in that city with the tunnel, I my my camera is actually looking three fourth like 45 degrees towards the city and towards the ground plane so those cars look very skewed so i tried to solve it for the longest time and i was like ah fucking and that's what i'm saying like you need to let go of issues like that i just took a building which is like the size of a skyscraper but then i scaled it down to like the size of like a car and then i like scaled it flat to make it like a ground so basically you have a building that has been squished like a pancake Mm -hmm. and then i just put it in the area where the cars park and I basically hit it. So you just don't see it. And it's okay, you know, to not have focus like that. So I did all that. And that's how the, I found a second footage. When I, when I started at this point, again, there were no commercials, there was no advertisement or any of it. Um, but I did realize that uh, I needed to add some people or something because it felt very dead. Like, like, yeah, there's cars, but like, like you're not showing life. You're not showing people of any kind. And for the longest time, I looked for so many drone footages, like top-down views of people, but I couldn't find anything. And then eventually, I found this one from the police riots. That's actually a video footage from the recent uh, George Floyd riots that were happening in the U.S. So somebody captured one of those riots from like a top-down drone angle. And I found that. And I took that. The same thing was happening. The video was drifting because the drone was like flying left to right. So first I stabilized that in Nuke, then I sent all the image sequence to Unreal, brought that in Unreal, and then because there was no way there's people involved, I could not move that drone angle to a side angle at all. Like I could not deviate it because you need to see bodies of people at that point. So I knew that I can't cheat that angle. So I was like, you know what, it's okay. I'm just gonna do an exact top-down angle. So that's why my shot of the people matches the actual angle that the drone captured it in. So that way, all I'm doing is just pulling the camera back at different heights. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for that, something I did that really sells the shot a lot more is uh, you see the ground plane, right? The, with the people and the police car and the police car has the flashing light on it. Um, but all that is just a video playing on a card. So when I put my 3D buildings in that on top of that video, my 3D buildings need to react to the light of the police cars flashing. And I thought that was a good way I could sell the realism by having the actual lights of the police car flash on to the building. 
Now, one way of doing this would be make actual lights in Unreal and then animate them to be on, off, on, off every time. Mm -hmm. Or you could make a light in Unreal and then add this video as a texture. So the video is actually a texture of the light. So the light is actually basically like a projector, projecting light outwards uh, with a specific texture on it, the same way you would have a projector and if you were to project it on like anything, right? So that's why I kept aligning and adjusting the angle of the light to a point where the flashing that was happening in the video uh, ground matched to the flashing that was happening in the light that I was placing. And that way, when you look at that shot and as I'm pulling the camera back, you would see that as the uh, cop car is flashing the light back and forth, the same way there's an actual light like flashing on and off onto the balconies of the building that are 3D buildings in Unreal mm. that are nearby. That's fascinating. That's important. That, that, that particular, I think that's a pretty smart trick the way you handle that because it gave that light and that entire scene a lot of volume. It felt quite realistic. I mean, if you had not explained this entire breakdown, I wouldn't have guessed that was the process at all. Yeah, because it's, it's one of those things where I feel like that's something that we also end up getting a lot of times when I, because I come from a traditional compositing background, it really helps me uh, know this. Because a lot of the times when we're doing CG in traditional VFX, we end up doing things where there's a robot walking on a CG ground and yeah, it's great and all. But I miss the fact that a lot of filmmakers back in the days used to have physical, practical changes happening to their scenes because of CG objects, which is very important. Like, for example, you would have the dinosaur in Jurassic Park, like move or jump in an interior environment somewhere. And you would have real pans uh, fall from the kitchen counter onto the ground, which are actual pans on strings that they're pulling, but then they're moving because of a CG object. And that sells the, uh, the effect a lot more than just having the dinosaur jump on and having CG pans fall down. Mm, you know what I mean? If you were to just have the actors, like the famous sequence, as I was ta- talking about the one from uh, uh, Jurassic Park where the kids are in the kitchen and yeah. the velociraptor moves in. So like a lot of that is actual physical effects that are happening where like the uh, they would actually physically dent the metal or something instead of, you know, just having like a CG character in the background. So it's important to have effects like that where either your CG character is lighting your practical things or your practical light is falling onto the CG object. Like if you have, say, a flashing police car that you actually got on set and then your robot who's standing next to the police car also is getting a flashing light from the on and off of the actual police car. So that would sell the effect a lot more compared to having a completely CG police car, but then the police car is not reacting to anything in the environment except for the robot. You know what I mean? It's, it's mm-hmm. not reacting with the ground. It's not affecting the actors. It's just affecting this robot, which is also CG. So it, it breaks things very subliminally in your mind that you don't really pick up on because your brain doesn't register it like consciously, but because we see reality and we perceive reality, it's things like this that get perceived subconsciously and your brain's like something's off here, but you can't really tell exactly what. So it's little changes like that. Just kind so, of building off this point, uh, it's a slight tangent from your uh, the short film. I just wanted to know like in your professional side of work, because we haven't spoken much about that, as a compositor in larger productions, where you have like a set of tasks that you need to get done. Due to the nature of compositing as a particular part of the pipeline, do you get opportunities to be able to add your own ideas and designs as part of your daily work? Or this is the reason you need to do more of these personal projects to be able to 
put those ideas across um i think in the beginning you don't get uh cho- uh, obviously you're a junior so you don't have choice you don't have any creative control over things um but but this is something that i uh feel like works out the more you work and the more your seniors see you do your shots they end up seeing that you're not just someone who's um uh just like in the field you're like like i'll give an example like for example when we were doing power rangers i was one of the first movies that i worked on in pixel mm-hmm. uh there was like a certain effect to the energy suit which was happening so like the suits were practical and then uh they ended up uh, having these energy lines that flow through them and the look for that was being developed by a senior compositor which makes sense but then at that time i was junior and i was just given shots to comp and they would tell me what it's supposed to look like or they would show me somebody else senior some other senior compositors comp and be like make this in your shot or something so you don't get choice but then when i got free time even though the senior compositor was working on the energy line effect i was like oh uh, what if i made a little tool of myself and i showed them oh we could do this or that and then i showed it to the guy and even though i didn't the tool wasn't used eventually and they still continue with their method mm-hmm. he saw the fact that i could do a certain look there and then over time as i keep getting more and more shots and picks so i started getting a lot of the shots that were looked at shots that where the look hasn't been established for a certain effect like uh like a certain um like a magical effect or like a vortex or something they're like oh so there's supposed to be a vortex here and then you don't know what the magical the vortex is supposed to look like so they started assigning me those shots which is when i realized oh i could develop a look for a magical vortex mm. that the client still hasn't seen they do have concept images but they haven't seen it what it looks like in live action but, so but you get-, get to work with the vfx concept art to start getting some sort of a visual cue yeah yeah they do tell you like a little bit like it's supposed to be like this it's supposed to be blue or something like that but they don't know like the little details they don't know like oh the noise pattern is supposed to be large noise mm-hmm. or is it supposed to be very detailed fine no, wispy noise or something so that's choices that i could control on my hand mm-hmm. or like one of the first i believe look devs that i got was uh Star Trek season 1 is when Pixel became the primary vendor for Star Trek Discovery mm-hmm. and in the very first episode they scan an object but the object is actively jamming the scanner so i had to create a visual look where there's this this telescopic camera thing that's trying to zoom in and look at something but everything is else is normal but this one craft is very it's distorting it's basically jamming and i'm like how do you like show jamming visually you can jam a radio signal you can't like jam like like what are you seeing right is that at the that shot point, they, where they're in that desert planet the yeah beginning. the very beginning of it and then then they go up in their spaceship yeah and i believe burnham starts a war by going like flying onto this little spacecraft mm-hmm. but uh, before they do that there's shots inside the bridge where uh they're like oh we have detected and it's like zoom in onto it and then they zoom so that shot is the one i was compositing okay. so the look for that uh flickering glitching li- looking uh spacecraft wasn't there so i cr- i created the look for that that was like the first look they did and then that's when you start doing over and over they they trust you that you could do uh different look devs for um different effects and recently the some of the projects that pixels working on i can't talk about but mm-hmm. like there's like a lot of big characters that are pretty famous in the pop culture 
that I was given the look dev for. And they're like, oh, I'll try this out. And it didn't work out. And they changed the whole look at the very end. The client changed everything about it. But that's not the point. The point is that I at least get trusted to work with that. And that only develops yeah. if you if you end up uh, showing some sort of interest. It's not going to develop if you just sit all day and work nine to five and do what you're told. You need to like show more than what is asked from you. So that's that's how I feel like I it helped me to come up with a look of certain things in my personal projects where I feel like although I have creative control to decide certain shots, I still don't have story control. And that's why I keep saying that I don't see myself doing VFX for other people for a long time, simply because if, I, if I'm if i a believer of your story, I'll still help you out with the VFX because I think that it would add to my resume. And I, it's something that I want to show to everybody. Mm-hmm. But when it's like, movies where they don't even care or like movies where it's all uh just made to milk a franchise or something i feel like that there's like a lot more that could be done if there's like a better better uh story to it rather than just doing it for the sake of doing it but definitely i think the entire skill set that you acquired over the years is quite a handy one because now that you're like the batman shot that you've been talking about it gives you the tools to be able to execute it at a very very high level and as opposed to just being only in a certain, say, only being a lighting artist or only being a 3D modeler, where you're limited to a certain kind of work that you can do. So I think that's a good thing in the long run, especially as you want to go more into telling stories and becoming a director eventually. Um, I think I think even if you're like in a, another field, lighting or anything, as long as you're passionate about doing it, I was lucky to do Maya the three years when I was in Framebox, which helped me set up a strong 3D base to my work. So a point where a lot of the times I didn't have to, I would say like not really beg because not a right word, but like I didn't, I didn't have to like go up to artists and be like, can you please, can you please? Like in the very beginning days, I knew that I could do model texture light. Like the only things I couldn't do at that time was like rigging and effects. I could do effects, but like very basic looking stuff. And I could do rigging, but it would be like a very auto rig kind of thing. I couldn't do anything else. But then as as time went by and I didn't let go of my 3D skills, even though I did compositing, I still kept uh, working at th- scenes. Like, for example, the Seneca shot that I did with the planet excavator, where there's this massive ship that is looming in the background. This guy's walking. It was a part of the uh, compositing course that I was teaching at Seneca. Mm-hmm. where the goal was to create a shot from concept image to final movie quality VFX in seven weeks with the students. And uh, the, uh, I wasn't asked to do it. I would like the shot that I did myself because I was just supposed to teach. Uh, and when I told the students, okay, we're going to be doing this shot. Uh, and I personally like to call these shots the holy shots. And it's not the holy, like the English holy, it's the Hindi, H-O-L-I. And what I think it stands for is high output, low input shots, because it looks like you put in a lot of work into it, but it has this production value where you could sell it to be a lot more than it is, Mm -hmm. simply because your uh, your, uh, not compositing, but like even your composition skills, your lighting, your colors that you're putting in are very good looking. They don't look amateur. And the only reason you could do these if you is if you take it from people who have already aced these fields for you. And those people are the people that do concept art. 
people who have like sat down and done years and years of uh, composition and knowing what colors fit in and how angles fit in and what lines go where and all that. So we as compositors learning uh, compositing don't have to know that. We can take a, sh a concept image and then we can take that into a final video form. So that's what I was trying to teach to the kids mm -hmm. where I said, you, all you have to go to our station and then all you have to pick, all of you have to come up with five concepts images that you really like, then you're going to turn into a video of that exact thing that you're seeing. Capturing the mood of it is, is essentially what I was saying. So a lot of the students uh, did, a lot of them didn't, and most of them come from different backgrounds. So some of the students were planning on going into effects. Some of the students were planning on going on to like animation, lighting, and then some of them planning, planned on going into compositing. But uh, all of them were saying the same thing where they were like, oh, it's not possible. Seven weeks is like too too short of a time to like come over the shot and i'm like you guys have all day you could do it and they're like no it's not i'm like okay you know what how about this i take a shot with you guys and i was already doing like my nine to nine to nine to nine job because like most of the times we were like OTing at that time so mm. i'm already working that's, at pixel that's a pretty heavy day like 12 hours yeah it's like uh, it's just only like during crunch time whenever like things are getting delivered otherwise it's like usually the default uh, eight and a half hours. Okay. But um, after I finished that, then I would uh, work on the Seneca thing uh, for my own shot that I was doing for the students while also preparing the course material for the class that was coming up. And then on the weekend, on Saturdays is when I would have the class for Seneca is when I would like come together, do the class, teach them, and then show them my progress, ask them for their progress. And in each each class, I was like taking things piece by piece where I was like, oh, in the first class, we're gonna be learning um, like uh, the very first thing that you would need for 3D, like let's say tracking. So you need to track your plate. Uh, the next thing you would need is like how to composite 3D. Next thing would be how to key your foreground character. And then next one would be how to add uh, uh, all these uh, effects and stuff, matte painting, projections, projection mapping. The next would be how to like composite everything together. So like each week had one class that broke down into like different sections. And then I had to do my part in my shot to show them. So like if the first class I'm teaching them tracking, I already need the week before, I already need to have my shots tracking done mm -hmm. so I can show them, look, I done my tracking and it's doable and I did it in one week. And then the next week, if I have to show them CG compositing, I have to build my whole scene, render light and get renders out, composited in new file. And then on Saturday, I'd be like, look, I rendered, lit, put everything together and did that. And here's the render. So you're basically you... one week ahead of the class the entire exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then by the end, at the very end, last class, when I'm adding finishing lens touches and how to make things look real, mm -hmm. uh, that's when they still have one week to go after that. Uh, so for that, for that concept, I took... Uh, uh, Espen Olsen Satsatrovic is his name. Um, he's this concept artist that I uh, like. And one of his concepts uh, called uh, Osiris, I believe, that he took down from his art station, but it still existed on Reddit somewhere, okay. was this beautiful sunset uh, Star Wars-y looking uh, desert planet with these little um, facilities or like little radio tower thingies that are spread across the desert while this massive ship like looms over the entire desert. And I really like that concept. And I, mm -hmm. to me, it looks pretty simple in terms of uh, 
the the ship is very hazed out because it's so large and so high up that all you see is like a silhouette off the ship so you don't really like see little fine surface details because it's so far away and it's like so hazed out and all the buildings are so far away that they could basically be carts like you don't have to like model actual geometry for any of them but um i really like that concept so i i was like okay i'm gonna do the concept with you guys and you guys have to do it with me so you all pick one and then they were like, oh, but you are like, you already do compositing. You can't like uh, compare that to us. Like we barely started the field. I'm like, but you also have the technical advantage of working on this one thing all day, seven days a week, while I'm only doing it for like five hours after I work. So it's still balanced because even though if I have the experience, I don't have the time to do it. And you guys don't have the experience, but you guys have all the time in the world. Um, but uh, eventually, uh, I'm actually also curious, like, how did you get into teaching so quickly? I mean, you've been working for about five years at this point. So it's, um, I used to, so like Mahmood, like I said, is the VFX supervisor, like the main studio head, mm-hmm. uh, of Pixel and he teaches Seneca. So he's the one who taught us and all of that. So he goes and teaches, I believe one or two days a week. And sometimes when he's really bogged down with work at Pixel, then he sends somebody else to take class for him, oh. where he would send another industrial professional, like someone from Pixel, to teach either. Like the, he would send, like for example, like the um, effects specialist, like the senior effects guy, to teach them something about Houdini, or he would send like a compositing person to teach them something about compositing for one class. So that's how I started teaching at Seneca for like covering for him for like one class, like once in every like I don't six months or something so it won't be as frequent like because he would take most of his classes it's only like sometimes during crunch times so that's how I started doing it and then whenever I used to go and take the class the students would really like it because I would approach them as a student myself because I know what it's I'm not gonna be like okay so class everybody will now sit down and we're gonna start so it's gonna be very chill and we're gonna have like jokes and we're gonna like talk about memes and stuff that's how you like make a rapple with like the kids and you act like you're one of them and um, even in one in one class a lot of the students would sometimes send uh, emails to the program coordinator cho and they'd be like uh, we really like the guy who came yesterday that was nice and then joe would send me an email saying oh i never get a response like that that was great that you came so like in his eyes because he's the coordinator for the program Mm -hmm. he's the one who decides who gets what class and who's the teacher so when he kept seeing me that I take these classes and students like it, um, he ended up um, uh, take, he has to take a break, like a mandatory break himself. And he teaches compositing and effects. So that's when he approached me and he's like, would you like to do a full class for like seven weeks, like a proper course? And that's when I was like, yeah. So I've been doing it for two summers as of now. Um, but then this summer, this he approached me, but then I'm, um, planning on doing the whole Batman thing, which I feel like I need to focus on more. Mm-hmm. So coming but back to uh, the Batman project, I wanted to talk about like how you have been approaching building the team around that idea. So the whole goal with the Batman project is the fact that uh, it's supposed to be photo real. Uh, I'm looking, like I said, to achieve I don't know if you've seen when Arkham Knight came out, there was a cinematic that Blur did with Deathstroke and our uh, Batman fighting. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful uh, cinematic that looks very realistic. It's mm-hmm. obviously video gaming, you can tell, but uh, it's high enough in quality because of course, like Blur did it. Yeah. And um, 
um, I really like their level of cinematics that they have in general. So I was uh, hoping to achieve that level of realism. And I know for that, um, oh, while, while we were talking about how Batman was supposed to be live action and we did, we did these tests, and then I mentioned how I stopped that project and then did Neon Sins. And then after I finished Neon Sins is when I realized that my friend like gave me an idea. It's like, what if we made something different? And he's like, what if we did cyberpunk with Batman? And then in the beginning, I was kind of against it because I felt like I had done too much cyberpunk stuff. I already had the tears in the rain and now neon sins. And mm-hmm. then I didn't want to do Batman in the same style. But then I realized, what if we took uh, a, a good mixture of the two art styles? That's when I started looking into, I didn't even know there's a website called Aesthetic Wiki where you can just like read about it's a wikipedia about aesthetics and how they're like so basically like steampunk diesel punk deco punk solar punk ray punk atom punk there's like cyberpunk there's so many of these aesthetics i didn't even know about that Mm -hmm. exist there's retro futurism basically like art styles of the world so i started reading into that and that's when i realized that it would be cool if we could make up this hybrid mixture of the 40s gangsters Al Capone style New York or like the 20s with these concrete buildings that we see that that represents Art Deco the, the thing that we see in the Art Deco kit of Kid Bash basically but if we took that and then we incorporate the the cyberpunk elements to it and this is when I was surprised the punk part is not the thing that actually makes it futuristic so when you say steampunk, yeah, it's, the uh, it, it's it's not the punk that makes the steampunk have the future stuff. Like, for example, in cyberpunk, it's the cyber, cyber. that means future. But the punk is just a, a movement that started in the 70s and the 80s when the word was coined, where uh, before you had uh, like these like the bad guys, but now like the, you know, the mafia style and like the proper, like the one we see in the movies of the old days. But then the whole punk movement started where you could have these uh, like the thugs, you the young thugs that you would talk about who would like, that's why the whole term came all like you got punked, meaning like you got like a young guy who like basically robbed you or mugged you or something. Yeah, I mean, also then, it had that whole early, uh, early, let's say the early stages of that anti-establishment move. Exactly, right. Yeah. That's that's something that I didn't know about either. But then I realized that it basically a punk world basically represents a society which is oppressed by a higher society that's trying to exploit it in some way or form. Mm-hmm. And that I feel like was the best description of Gotham to begin with, because that's how like Gotham has been in the comics, and it's always been like corrupt. And uh, so I, I thought, what if we took the the futuristic parts of whatever we see in the cyberpunk designs or the cyberpunk world and then we blend that into the uh, art deco style and create this hybrid mix of the two worlds but then make that in a photoreal world that the batman lives in so um that's when i came up with the idea of doing this but then that's when i also realized that the whole previous idea i had with live action Mm -hmm. to make the whole thing in live action with like real thugs because before it was just a fedora and a trench coat right so you could just get an actor to wear it and then that would be it but then it's really hard to add like prosthesis to actors without like, uh, like I could still spend money on it. That's not even the goal. Like, like sure, there's no money earned from the project. At the end of the day, we are all 
doing it because we all collaborate our skills into it. But sometimes projects do need money. Yeah, definitely do. Like, for example, uh, if you're on set, even if I get the camera free, the crew free or the location free, you still have to like feed the crew. You still have to take care of like, let's say the prosthetics people bring with them or like the materials needed for that and all that. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll still spend my own money on this project. But I saw some of the short films that were out there on YouTube. that were like these really big short films with like, uh, like a recent one was a cyberpunk one that came out from the cyberpunk 2077 game that somebody made. And they had like top notch cosplayers cosplay as these cyber enhanced characters. And it still looked like, you know, like plastic on their face. And that's what the whole mentality comes back from my childhood where it's like, I don't want mediocre. Like I, I don't want it to be where I, I put in money and everybody puts in effort and I see this little plate on somebody's head, like a cyber plate. And it looks like a plastic piece that was painted metal. You know what I mean? It looks fake. It looks amateurish. Like when I'm making something, I want it to look like somebody could take my, my goal with my shots is, Somebody can see that out of context and ask, what movie is this from? Mm -hmm. That's that's my goal for whenever I make a shot. Is like, it needs to not look like a short film, not short film, not look like a amateur student work of some sort. It needs to look like it's something that was like made by a lot of people and a lot of money went into it. And that's what the whole holy shot thing comes in, where it's like, it looks like it's a high output shot, but not as much input goes into it. Of course, there's like work that goes into it. But you could still make something look avatar level without having avatar level money into it, of course. Like you can't make a full feature avatar at that quality because, of course, for that you need money. Mm -hmm. But you can always make little proofs of concepts that are very high in quality and not sacrifice that. So That's at that point, I, I decided. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Um, at just that, at that point, I decided to scratch the whole involving live action idea and i was like it's not gonna even if we do the best job it's not gonna look good so i'm just gonna cancel this and i'm just gonna do everything in cg hmm. and that's when i started like putting the team together and i also wanted to know in terms of that networking aspect of it like how did you know who were the right people to get in touch with to start building okay and stuff like that and here's the thing it's like uh so obviously for the first five days i would say when i decided that it's gonna be full cg five days of my life was just me on the on art station with 70 tabs open on my chrome where it's like every tab is like just a little icon it doesn't even have space to write the name of the tab that's how many tabs i had open and then all i was doing is just like going i just searched batman on art station and you can imagine how many results would come out if you just search batman there's like twenty five thousand results and i was like okay let's and they don't have a paid system so you don't even know how many pages down you are in it's a scroll based system so mm -hmm. you keep scrolling and more images keep loading yeah and then i kept opening every single one and then i would go through it i'll see if i like it if i do if i don't then i started like pulling the images to start making a mood board in pure ref um uh, and I started adding all these images together and went through so many artists and I kept like bookmarking every single one and whoever's work I liked. And at the end of the day, when I had like, let's say a template written for my concept of what it's supposed to be, I would say whenever you're drafting your message to the artist, don't, don't, don't do each. So there's two extremes. One is where you handwrite every artist. You're like, Hey, so blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And then you explain the whole thing. And that's one extreme. 
that's going to take you forever and it's only going to get you to like 10 artists at that speed. Mm-hmm. And the other extreme is where you have a very copy paste message where it's like, hey, this project, talk to me, please message, blah, blah, and done. I feel like both of those messages uh, are not efficient in terms of reaching out to a lot of people in a very short time. You need to have a mixture of the two where whatever your base theme of your uh, concept is. So if I'm saying, oh, the Batman is based on this, 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 with a theme that goes from this to this, a hybrid of this and blah, blah. And here's the links to my work. Like those things could be the same copy paste, but I will always make sure that every artist that you're writing to write something that you liked about their work. So that they know that you invested time in them mm-hmm. as a team member. You didn't just like send them a message because you were sending it to a hundred more people and they're just another person. Like they need to know that if you wrote things to them, it's because you cared enough that you went through all of their artwork, you saw all of their stuff, and you told them what you liked and didn't like about, um, did not didn't like. Don't don't tell them what you didn't like on the first message, but uh, tell them what you liked about their stuff, and then tell them if this is the project. And there's a specific way of writing messages, which I feel like it's very intuitive and only comes to people uh, over time. Mm-hmm. But the way I draft mine is like usually involves hello. And then I introduce myself in the first thing. It's like, what do I do? And after that, I message uh, something that they can relate to, which is when I explain how I, when I grew up, I watched Batman. And I'm sure like a lot of the artists that are on the project, they also grew up and they want to make something. So they relate to your project. They understand uh, it on a personal level. And then they explain, then you explain, but every time you explain, you got to be clear and uh, not, don't fool, try and fool them because eventually truth will come out. So like, for example, don't try and be like, okay, I have this project. It's going to be so cool and blah, blah, blah. But then you write very shady words where you're trying to tell them that it's going to be paid, but you're not really mentioning the word collaboration because you're scared that they might run away, but you're trying to make it sound like a commission work. And then once you have talked enough with them, that's when you tell them it's collaboration. Mm-hmm. So don't try and trick people like that because it's not cool. Yeah. Or a lot of the times, like as of now, I'm talking to a lot of artists who have huge followings and I'm currently in talking stage with them. They're not a part of the project. So clearly write currently in talks with blah, blah, blah person because the other artists, when they see it, they know that, oh, these people he's talking to, but they're not on the project. So a lot of times I've seen people lie where they'd be like, oh yeah, this person is totally on board. Like they would like name drop people who are not even going to be remotely like I've been on part like parts of like shorts and stuff where people will be like, oh, this big person that you know of, like, you know, like obviously not like an A-grade Hollywood celebrity, but like someone you've heard a name of kind of celebrity. They'll be like, yeah, that person's going to be involved in this project. I'm like, what? And then that makes you join the project. But then when they said that, they only meant that they sent an email and that's it. And I'm like, that's not the same thing as them being on the project. Yeah. You need to tell your artist the truth. And that's what I do. Like, all the artists who are the super, super top tier artists who I know are beyond my league and would never be a part of this project, I have saved them for later in terms of sending them a message. So first I got artists that are famous and I want them to be on the, uh, like they're already out there in the industry. They have their own name to a point where you like name drop them and people would come on your project based on that. But you need to get like at least three or four of those artists on board. And and after that, you can ask other senior artists and be like, hey, this other artist is already on board. And these are the artists that I'm talking with. Would you like to be a part of this? And here comes the fun part. When you are done writing all this and thinking about all this, 
free, feel free to cold call as many people as you can because it doesn't matter at the end of the day if the person is too high up or uh, too far in terms of like uh, your reach that you can't reach them. Like for example, I'll give an example. It's so hilarious that I even dare. I was like, so there's an artist named Fausto De Martini oh, and yeah, he's really close. So uh, he's like one of the top people has been in the industry for like 25 years. Like he's been doing it before I was even born doing this, you know, and I still have the audacity to send him a message and be like, Hey, would you like to be a part of this project? It's so cool. But uh, I wrote the message to him and I knew that he wasn't going to like, he's going to be busy. I knew that. But my, my, my advice to other people is try it. It's okay. You know what I mean? It's okay to. And I think uh, it has the added benefit of even if that, super senior or talented or really good artist doesn't join the project they know at the back of their mind that this person exactly. is doing something you know yeah exactly and because i even after i messaged him so i was like oh yeah i worked on this blah, 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 with you and then he was so nice he's such a nice guy he was like replied and like post and he's like because like if you're that level at that point they'll be like no sorry can't okay good luck but then he like wrote a nice message where it was like hey sorry that looks very like a very cool project and it looks like a great idea to come like combining the two things, blah, blah. But unfortunately, as of now, I'm busy. And then he's like, I'm working on, like, I'm currently swamped with, like, this, this, this. And and then he said, and doing se- um, concept art for the sequels of Avatar. And I'm like, look at me, like, trying to be this guy, like, trying to get, like, this guy who's sitting with James Cameron trying to do concepts. And I'm <laughs> like, hey, can you do, like, this Batman concept? It's, like, really cool. But anyways, like he knew about it. And in the end, he was like, good luck and I hope it works. And then I was like, yeah, thank you for replying. And um, I'll keep you updated. Like once mm-hmm. it's done or in the middle of the thing, I'll send you an update. And like now they know, you know, like you said, like now they know your name and all. Yeah. So, and I think one cool thing is also, especially now that we mostly interact through Instagram with the artists that we don't know personally, because that chat history is there as well, right? The, exactly at the later stage they can again reconnect back to that moment when they reach exactly out. so i think that's and there's a lot of artists like that who were not free and they were like okay please keep in touch or we'd like to see where it goes and then i'm sure like once i make this so the goal is to once i make this i want it to be out there mm-hmm. and that's why i want all the artists who are on the project to have this work in progress thing that i'm promoting that everybody keeps sending as much work in progress as they can even if it's doodles or any of that and we like keep posting it and we keep like having a active social media base of people that are following the project to a point where when it's ready there's at least some people who are who are waiting to see it and that way you can like get more eyeballs on it so my goal as of now is to get as many eyeballs once the project is done get it to websites and you'll be like surprised to so many websites out there that are like these publishing portals right Mm -hmm. like uh io9 or gizmodo or like uh, Kotaku or like all these port, uh, portals that like talk about new and upcoming things that are easily in reach where you could just send an email to some some of them and they would just be out there trying to uh, promote if they see that you're doing good work but the final final goal with the project is um, that I want to uh, get Bruce Tim to and the team of the original cartoon to get their eyes on it and maybe I don't know react to it so the the main guy who's doing the Batman concept right now, Max, uh, he's big fan of Bruce Tim and the designs that Bruce Tim did for the cartoon. So now that Max is designing this Batman, um, he was like, "Oh man, 
so much pressure uh, from uh, like expectations from you. I'm like, no, don't stress about my expectation. <laughs> okay, uh, whatever you create is already gonna because already he already created the Batman that I really liked, which we're going with as as the base for the look and then like upgrading it to our thing. But then I was like, I already like your stuff. Like you don't have to like worry about that. But just know this fact that even if it takes me five years of nonstop cold calling and spamming on his Twitter and his Instagram and his emails, I will make sure even if it takes five years that Bruce Tim ends up seeing your work and your concept. So uh, if you have any, want to have any stress, have stress from him. The fact that at some point Bruce Tim is going to see your work and he's going to judge it. So it's like, oh man, too much, too much project, too much stress, man. I can't do this. I'm like, okay. But uh, yeah, so my, my personal goal is that I would have, felt like I have given an homage to the guy who inspired me and who made me feel like his rendition of Batman is the best that I've seen across all media that I've ever seen of Batman, whether it is live action or um, whether it is uh, video cartoon, game, yeah. animation, yeah. live action or anything. So have you formally announced the project yet? from your social media channels? No, not as of now, but uh, I'm planning on, because I still have stuff for the Neon since that I'm trying to uh, wrap up. I have to create uh, the making of for, uh, I, have to, I have to create the making of for the Neon since that I have to post up. But after that, um, once once uh, we have one image from the project of some sort, either Max's design mm -hmm. or Yuhani uh, Yokinen, who's doing the Gotham look, or some of my friends who already joined in, and I'm hoping you're going to join in too. Once we have like some sort of concepts starting out, that's when I feel like teasing it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the good thing is that I'm looking at right now, because the official deadline for the project for that I've said is September. Uh, Batman Day happens to be in uh, September 18th, I believe, okay. uh, this year. So at least we can have a one deadline that we have to get this out by no matter what. So like Batman Day is not going anywhere. It's going to stay there. So we have like a drop dead deadline no matter what. So um, as of now, probably going to just tease the fact that this is what we're doing. Because I want, like I said, once the work in progress is start coming in, doesn't matter who created the work in progress. I feel like um, all the artists who want to should share on their Insta stories or their mm -hmm. Instagram so we can get like more and more people to see it. That's actually, a, I really like that strategy because there's always that um, need to kind of preserve or hide the entire project till the last moment where you just drop it like a big bomb essentially. But this oh. approach of slowly getting the people involved and part of the process almost i think that's also a nice way yeah like you don't want to like give away too much of it like you don't want to like show everything obviously but at the same time um you also don't want to um like drop everything at the last second because you like you it's better to get fan feedback if you like start hashtagging batman and like batman art or whatever and like you like people who like batman start following it then it's good to have like some sort of critique with them saying oh this looks cool this looks like that so we still have time to change by the time we finish it rather than just like dropping it like the sonic trailer and then the whole <laughs> world going like what is this shit fix it and now it's like too late in production that you have to change it anyways hmm. but yeah that's true fascinating stuff yeah so, a lot of exciting stuff ahead then yeah a lot a lot of projects it's uh this one is the biggest one that i've done as of now and 
I can only say that after like having experienced work in the field for so long, I feel like I have the skills, what it takes to take CG. So if like, if artists come together and give me like the renders that I need, I know that I can like take them to the level they need to be in order to have them be photorealistic. And then I'm sure like once it's out there, it's going to be something that's going to be pretty unique that's not been seen before. And I'm sure when you and I talk about the project one-on-one, mm-hmm. uh, you'll see the, the vision that we're trying to go for, which is going to be pretty unique Gotham that hasn't been out there or a look for the Batman that is kind of still authentic because we, we can't lose gold while we're doing all these changes to our vision that it still needs to be the intro to the original one. It still needs to look and feel like that world, but it's just that the world has evolved more. Yeah, that balance that has to be perfectly positioned in a way where yeah. it's relatable enough that people can recognize what yeah, the source inspiration exactly. is. Like we also want to add our stuff, but that's a goal for like, if we can, then we will. If not, then um, that's it. If there's time doesn't allow, because our goal is to go through all the existing shots as of now and then add our own shots to it in order to like give more context to the world or to Batman or to this whole fight that happens in the trailer. But uh, it, it needs to, like a lot of things don't hold up in animation as much as they do in live action. Like a lot of the, animation moves or like the way they do lighting and stylization you can't really exactly replicate in 3d without it looking very weird um so there there has to be changes even like the soundtrack i absolutely am a fan and i'm not going to change the soundtrack but i'm also realist enough to know that there are certain parts of it which sound very um um like I don't know the word, but like it's like it's like it sounds like a lot of instruments going off at like da 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 kind of thing, you know. It's like it. I like the opening grimness of it, and like that part, the very end crescendo of it. So that those parts I know can stay the same relatively, but I'm also gonna be like partnering up with like some sound designers that I look up to personally, and see if they would like to make a theme that is like that, but like some with the with some sort of like, I don't know, future synth or like something into it to mm, that make sounds, it. Into- that sounds fun. Yeah, like because like like any piece of art, it's a product of its time and the inspirations that they drew from. So there's only so much that they can project ahead in terms of how evergreen a particular soundtrack or a particular piece of exactly. art will be like. So yeah, it'll be interesting like, to see how musicians take it forward as well. Exactly, because like a lot of the times, like the base themes are, don't change as much. Like you're all, it's it's the exact same. Like for example, they did with the Jurassic theme. You know, the old Jurassic one. It's like da na 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 na, and then like you take that's the base theme, and it's gonna be evergreen no matter what. But like when you make Jurassic World, you're gonna make like a variation of it. Like you know what I mean? It's like it's supposed to fit the Jurassic World, not the Jurassic Park. So it'll still have like some changes to it, but like the base of it still stays the same. So I'm not gonna like like venture too far away from the original thing that inspired me as a child, but it's just something that I want to put out, and then hopefully we make it like uh, non-monetized and like explicitly mentioned that we're not affiliated with Warner Brothers and all all of that. That at some point we can get like Warner Brothers' attention or like DC's attention. That would be more than great to have like in terms of like a appeal where people can see that artists can get together and at the very very end of it the whole goal is to have a team of people 
that I feel like there's so many teams out there that I see like Ashtorp or like Sava Zivkovic and all yeah, these people who definitely like they're they're just artists they're not really uh they're they're not really people who can do things by themselves I mean they can obviously but they also have teams for when they do like bigger projects they always like team up with other artists that um they're comfortable with so at the very end I feel like if we create something successful with a great team that like bonds together I feel like it'd be a team that can work on many more concepts together and that's the good part that we can choose to do and not do and make changes ourselves rather than having a man in a suit with like money telling us what to do mm, that's true having that creative control is quite necessary especially when you're working in larger studios for your day job where of course there are client expectations and expectations of your seniors that have to be met because there's no other way around it so having these kind of personal projects where you get to dictate terms is quite important as well because that kind of creative outlet is definitely needed if you want to really push your skills in a powerful manner ahead i feel yeah exactly it's uh it's it's one of those things where uh i think it was dirubai ambani's quote i forgot maybe it could be wrong internet just like copy paste everybody's quotes on random images <laughs> but uh, i feel like the quote is really well said it goes something like um i'm probably going to butcher it but uh, um start working towards your own dreams or somebody else will hire you to work on theirs and i feel like there's a very strong distinction between um when it comes to like and that's the 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 reason why i feel like collaboration is such a, a great tool versus getting hired for something is because when you get hired for something you're doing it because you're getting paid to do it when you collaborate it's because you have your own vested interest into the project mm. so i feel like when that i hear that quote and i told it to my one of my friends and he was like oh well uh you're basically uh asking other artists to join your projects you're doing essentially the same and that's when it made made me think and that's when it made me ponder and i was like well it's not exactly the same for this exact reason the fact that i'm not paying them to be on this project the fact that they are interested in being in this project the same way if they're going to tell me their concept tomorrow and if i like it that i'm going to be a part of their project too and that's when you can really see some great work happen is when people want to do something versus when they have to do something yeah it's like um, the collaborators are voluntarily choosing to collaborate there's there's no pressure from either side so then it's like a true interest that is there on everyone's side where they want to come together and build something bigger because like you said even though each of these artists can individually create something quite good but the moment you team up with like-minded individuals then you can push the limit of what you can create by yourself yeah uh just just a second uh i do have a meeting at 3 with another artist but i'm making sure if they're online if they're not then we can continue Yeah I mean but yeah we are at 2 hours 40 minutes at this point so I don't know what the what, what is the average length I I saw the last one I feel like it was an hour or something mm, or the one that came out last weekend was at 2 hours 15 minutes it kind of varies you know so some people we close the conversation at 1 hour the one that's going to be coming out tomorrow it's at 3 hours long so it just varies depends on the energy of the conversation like this one's flowing quite well so it goes on longer So it really depends. How's how's your short thing coming out cuz you told me that you're almost done with it. Yeah, um I'm 
close to finishing it. I wouldn't say it's completely done yet, but I'll send you some raw frames which are not gone into post-production yet. Again, for me also, it's like a completely new experience because my core skill is concept art. So doing a, a CGI shot is something quite outside my comfort zone as well. So it's like a lot of experimentation, a lot of trial and error that goes into creating that. But again, a lot of experience and a lot of things that I've learned along the way. So just acquiring is these there, skills. I, I already saw the poster for it. Do you have any more content we can see? Because I feel like you're just going to drop the whole thing. I, ha I have some stuff that I can share, but I want to wait for a bit longer till I'm a bit closer it's into better. the post-production. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to jump the gun and release too much too soon. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, But yeah, I mean, apart from that, I started writing a script for another CGI short that I want to start after this. So yeah, kind of along the same lines as your thinking is as well in terms of telling interesting stories that you have and kind of pushing those storytelling and directorial skills along the way while doing the core skill that you have, which becomes part of your day job, essentially. Yeah. Is there any past experiences that you had with like making shorts and stuff? Not at all. It's just, it's just essentially like the names you mentioned earlier, like Ashthorpe, Sava, those guys have been pretty big inspirations. Even Macha Kuchera, who released his short recently, just looking at their trajectory over the years, because I've been following their work for a while now, how they have grown from their core skill that they started with and then progressed from there on creating much bigger projects. So that's been a pretty big inspiration for me as well. And as it has been for many, many other artists as well. So just, again, I, I really enjoy reaching out to people, collaborating with other artists. So that's how I started building a team as well to work on my short. Again, those are friends who, if they again come with other, other ideas that they have, I'll also want to collaborate with them on their projects. So again, it's just building those teams. So I think it's quite fun. And yeah exactly because like i see end up uh like we all know ash and then like we, i see the people that he teams up with mm -hmm. and now i'm following those people and then like you see that they're releasing their projects and then like now i'm waiting to see their projects and now ash is like oh i'm helping out my friend on this and i feel like that's how the synergy should be where um it should be one of those things where you can trust the people that you're investing in you can let them do their thing instead of like micromanaging them every single time and like telling them exactly what to do if the communication is not there. That's true. Um, so there's one last question that I like to end on generally is just mm -hmm. looking five to 10 years into the future. Do you, are you the kind of artist oh, or person who thinks about that or do you just take it as it comes? Um, five, 10 years. Damn, I'll be 40. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say I'm kind of that person. I, it's it's going to sound very cheesy. I, when I was in India in 2014 and I hadn't made it to Canada, I wrote myself an email in a draft mm -hmm. uh, saying, it's me. And then I wrote, oh, I'm, hey, future guy, I'm the guy from the back. And it's so cringe. But uh, uh, I'm right now in Canada. I hope you got your PR. Hope you worked hard and made some good projects. And, and all these cheesy stuff that I wrote when I was writing it. It was just a funny thing that I did. But then one day as I was cleaning my drafts folder, like five, four years later, I didn't even know that it was there. And I opened it and I like genuinely had like happiness wow. uh, 
from that like i had i was grinning from like uh, cheek to cheek where i saw that and i saw like how that past me had this vision of the future me and i have actually achieved those things and i feel like that's a great thing to have where like like in the past me i was writing oh i hope you have a great job i hope you're senior at your job i hope you have like a great personal life i hope you made projects and i hope you did like pr and make sure you do this make sure you do that and then at the very end i wrote uh uh okay see ya and then like i wrote my name and then i wrote the guy who wants to be desperately at the position that you are at now oh, and when nice. i read that i actually felt like it felt very like a emotional roller coaster because I I I wrote that. You know, it's like I wrote that and I wanted to be so badly in the position that I am right now and I take it for granted where I'm like, ah, whatever, just like compositing, who cares? But it's like to that guy, like he wanted to be here so desperately and I've lost that over the years. So I feel like things like that keep me in check. So I always I I probably I wrote something that I'm not going to say what I wrote for like the future me from 5 10 years from now, but I hope I achieve that. But personally speaking, my goal is to uh venture more and more into short films um more and more into creating high quality output for uh projects and venture into more directing stuff uh i am trying to get more comfortable with live action direction because i feel like i get intimidated by the set and like all the terminology that goes on the set and all the lingo and there's something a little thing that i want to change about filmmaking is the whole um this very stick by the script kind of uh thing that filmmaking has like i really like the gorilla aspect of filmmaking where you get a camera you get a light you get some people you get things done mm-hmm. whereas like when you have like a on set thing from at least what i've seen i mean i'm sure it works great because it's a formula that has been tried and tested over the years but i feel like it's very slow for like the creative juices to really be flowing it's like i've seen like people change lenses on a camera and it takes like 10 15 minutes because there's like yeah a certain amount of steps you have to do because everything is by the insurance and like the union guidelines and what not and i'm like if this was me with a friend and i had this camera i'd just like stick one on and be done with it mm-hmm. or little changes like that where it's like i feel like the turnaround of the the creative output is not as fast as it could mm, be i think um, i mean i do co- see where you're coming from regarding that aspect but i guess when it comes to a certain size of that machinery it it becomes like a slow moving process to get certain decisions done but that's but, what i'm saying but it needs it doesn't that kind have of thing. to be it doesn't have to be a big machine right like you're saying that a camera and aurelex or whatever that um, nolan shoots or an imax camera that nolan shoots on makes it look so pretty mm-hmm. you're telling me that i can't get to uh, 50 50% 60% of that visual output not story not anything just whatever the camera seeing you're telling me i can't have a camera that is within my reach like i don't know whatever uh like camera within 5 10 grand is not as expensive that could do the exact same thing with a smaller form factor and like oh, no. it, things it definitely can i mean it just comes down to how you so, shoot so so i wouldn't i wouldn't push for it like if if i got a project where i had the option to choose between one or the two i wouldn't mm-hmm. push for that higher camera just mm-hmm. because i know that it would bring with it that whole like big uh time lag for everything versus if you have something smaller and faster yeah sure yeah your output is not going to look like the best that hollywood can ever produce but that's not the point if your story is good enough there's been like movies that have been into like film festivals and stuff that are shot on iPhones and that's the same thing it's like people say you could give a monkey uh DSLR 
or you can give Roger Deakins an iPhone and <laughs> Roger Deakins is still going to do a better job yeah, at it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, in terms of developing your own properties, that's completely true. I was talking more in the sense of the the union that you had mentioned or the organization itself. Sometimes, I guess, there are so many people involved that it becomes part of the process where they need to go around yeah. those loops. Of course, there's it's always like, ways to make it more efficient, definitely. Yeah, but it's just that, like, like even now, like, Pixel is located in a filming studio. So like we're located around other studios that are actually like physical shooting studios where like trucks come in and like caterers and like all these people are walking around and all that. And every time I see it, or if I see like uh, the shooting happening somewhere in Toronto and you see like three blocks are just trucks full of like these uh, U-Haul discount type trucks that are just like loaded with like production gear and cables going everywhere and like all these lights that need to be. And I'm like, I, it's just like I see that as a person and I'm like I don't want to be that filmmaker I don't want to have like uh, like 15 trucks move in into a location and have like all this gear unpack just so I can get some lighting into a cafe you know it's like <laughs> the sun is there get a camera get some actors get the sunlight and shoot it it's okay if it's it's not um, you know exactly how it's supposed to be like you can always create everything in the digital world but um there is beauty in the natural world and it's beautiful enough to capture the way it is. Like you don't have to have such a massive crew come up with something and then you see the final output and it still looks like some light is outside a window instead of the sunlight. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like you did all that work for what? Like you try to sell me a sunlight and it still looks like a light because you put it too close to the actors and now the shadows are not parallel and I can tell that and it looks like a fake light now. Mm. Um, but again, but like we, we spoke about earlier, it still comes down to the story at the end, whatever yeah, exactly. production quality it may be. So yeah, for now I'm, I'm trying to stick to like CG stuff. We'll mm-hmm. see, like trying to do more live action as because I have some ideas that are purely acting based, which I feel like I'm not gonna be able to pull off in CG with like CG acting. So I probably need like actual actors for that. Or mocap maybe. I, I feel like it, it depends. We'll see where we are in five years from now in terms of like mocap looking more human-like. But I feel like as of now, it's it's it's, at, it's still in the uncanny valley, more or less. You can mm-hmm. tell it's a, at least I can tell. I'm sure untrained eyes cannot like tell as much. But like if I can't tell, if I can see a character online and be like, wow, that looks like a person, then I feel like to me it has passed the test personally or I could use that tech. But then, again, all that tech is very next level, ILM, Weta, proprietary stuff. So yeah, that, I see myself basically doing more shorts and doing more, uh, directing more content rather than just doing, I'm trying, I'm thinking of if Pixel would be interested in doing like a, a short film section or something. Which where like, I'm sure, because like, it's like Platige Image. I don't know if you know the studio, yeah. but like they do, so much of their own personal content versus doing uh, stuff like so basically they do their stuff which they send into festivals which is so crazy because the other stuff is from like amateurs mm-hmm. and then you have footage <laughs> much like competing against them yeah. and then on the other hand they're doing like client work and they're doing like uh, their own like ma- money making the actual earning the bread but at the same time they're also doing uh, a lot of the a lot of the like creative stuff where they're having their own control over what they make. So yeah, if, if I don't know, Pixel would be interested maybe later on to do something similar, I would love to be a part of that. And that way I can still get my sh- like creative juices out by like doing like shorts and stuff, but still be under a, 
a secure uh, way of money making. Or if I can like probably end up having a bigger virtual audience, like from, I don't know, YouTube or anything similar, then if I, if it becomes viable enough to move the livelihood to that, then I'll probably leave that and like I could do that and then have like Patreon or like some sort of support. I mean, given the fact that it's consistent because that's something, because like now, like I'm entering my actual life where I have to like settle down and like that's something that you have to think of too where it's like you want to have a job where you can like uh, live properly and pay all the bills and stuff. So lots, lots of things. It's like, this is the time I feel like the next five year or 10 years is going to define what my life will be in the years to come after. Mm-hmm. So it will definitely be me doing more of that, I feel like. And I'll see what, what happens to the email that I wrote now to see if that holds up five years from now. Yeah, it's just manifestation as long as you're working towards the goals, it'll happen. Yeah. Yeah, man. It was, it was great talking to you. It was Absolutely. a great refreshing take on um, like introspecting and seeing how things have evolved over the years. I would love to have another call some other time so we can talk more about uh, Batman Project. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we'll connect offline and talk about the projects down the line. And again, uh, just want to say thank you for coming on board. No, we, man. Thank never... you for asking. <laughs> no, no, no worries at all. I think... I really like the fact that now through this podcast, I've been able to reach out to other artists with a genuine reason to actually have a conversation with them because otherwise yeah. it's, it's kind of rude to keep interrupting people's schedule and just chat yeah. with them for the sake of it. So I think this is a good way to start. It's a great idea. Yeah, I feel like it's a great thing that you have started and I, I, I can yeah. definitely see if you keep continuing it. It's just like it, it, it. All all big things come from little beginnings, you know. It's mm-hmm. like you see Joe Rogan's first podcast is in his basement talking <laughs> yeah. about like, like his friends. They're all like messing around with each other. But like two thousand and one thousand episodes later, now mm-hmm. it's all professional. So I'm sure if you keep at it and if you keep asking more and more people, I'm sure a lot of senior people out there who are industry veterans are gonna come in, and that's how you're gonna make your contacts and your networks. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's gonna help you out with your directorial stuff that you're looking forward to for which i wish you good luck for this for the short film well that's it then i guess thank you sir you're welcome and yeah let's catch up soon